Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome back to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am your host for the day, Ryan Siebold, and with me, as always, is a man who just got back from the North Pole in search of Santa Claus, Mr. Jason Peters! What's up, Ryan? How's it going, buddy? It's going all right, man. <laughs> Hope you're all bundled up and warm. I am now season. back here in L.A. where it's uh, a very, uh, I don't know, brisk 100 degrees. Can you say brisk with 100 degrees? Uh, no, you cannot. No, no. Whatever the opposite of brisk is. Uh, apocalyptic, yeah, sweaty, maybe? Balmy. Apocalyptic, I think, might yeah. be a good descriptor. Yeah, yeah. Shitty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as, as someone that's uh, coming coming to you from Florida, I... I could tell you, I got that plus humidity, so yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wee bit of not all right. I'm also really bummed out. I didn't uh, uh, instantly regretted not saying ho ho ho. Ah, uh, it was right episode, there. But. I mean, we're so I know we're always about the low hanging fruit. It's, it's we're certainly not above it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Yeah, next time, gadget. Next time. So you just got back from the North Pole. Is this is I this did. correct? Are, yeah, you were looking for for Sandy Sandy Claus. You got anything to report back on that? Did you find him? What's going on? I do, I do. So here's the thing, man. Is you know I, I'm not exactly a wealthy man, but I do have a, a number of shall we say artifacts that I've acquired over the years, kind of in a very okay. Nick Cage National Treasure fashion. Story for another yes. day. Story for today <laughs> is that somehow Santa Claus found out that I had uh, this uh, this very sought after goblet from one of the equator countries uh, actually dated oh, wow. back to uh quetzalcoatl times yeah so Jeez. santa using his wily magic that's actually and and so you know that's actually trademarked that's what he calls it he calls it santa's wily magic swm santa's wily magic. yeah so sometimes yeah. he'll be like yo coming at you with some of that swm and that means santa's wily magic <laughs> uh yeah so he used a little bit of that to steal it straight through the chimney one night i imagine um, I, I, I wouldn't have even the known goblet. it was him if it weren't for all of the reindeer crap and snow boot prints left all over my living room and fireplace. He apparently he's gotten off his game over the years. He's not exactly uh, on it these days, leaving, leaving track. He's so a, he's a bad yeah, house. I had to go back and get my goblet, man. You yeah. don't fuck with Quetzalcoatl's goblet. <laughs> that, that story took a crazy right turn. I did not expect <laughs> any sentence of that to be come out of your mouth <laughs> you and me both buddy you and me both <laughs> man well let me tell you about uh one thing that happened though while i was on the job so while i was searching for the goblet turns out i get there right. another bounty hunter is there searching for the same goblet wasn't his goblet but bitch. the intel that he got was so solid that he knew that santa had it so I go down there, getting ready to bust down the door, you know, all dramatic style, you know, like I'm an action hero. And lo and behold, someone busts it down before me. I look over and it's, I'm like, 
dude, I know this guy. Turns out it's Sean from the Cheap Seat podcast, Cheap Seat Reviews. And so I asked him if he wanted to be on the show. We started talking, you know, let him know it was my goblet. He was very understanding, backed off. It, as, as sort of a thank you, I invited him to be on the show. And he came with us here today. So I brought Mr. Sean all the way from the North Pole from Cheap Seat Podcast to be here on the show today. Holy smokes. Sean, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks for joining well, us today. I do appreciate it. I mean, you know, when you get a tip that you got to go get the, 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 the thing from on top of the hive so you don't incur the wrath of the whatever, like you have to do it, right? You just, you got to go. <laughs> and it was just, it, it was an expert in your field, obviously. That's obviously. solid I intel mean, coming through. <laughs> That's solid yeah. intel. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, when, you know, it, you say the North Pole, like I mean, I I lived in Boone, North Carolina, which is you know kind of kind of like the North Pole. It's very snowy and cold, and you have to walk uphill both <laughs> ways in the snow. Like you know, it's it's kind of the same thing. So I was already prepared for the trek mm. uh, to the Great White North, uh, and I've also been to Alaska twice, so that also prepared me. Nice, that counts. Absolutely. Yeah, that all checks out. I heard Boone is like the North Pole for Halloween. It's the Boone. It's like the spooky, <laughs> spooky. You just love North doing Pole, that spooky voice. Any I, any <laughs> excuse to use your spooky voice, and you take it. I love it. You know, I I, I lived there for spooky Christmas. <laughs> I lived there for five years, and I've never heard that. That's amazing. Um, I don't think any Boone Boonies would appreciate it, but that's fine. Sean, thank you for joining us today. We love you. We appreciate you. We're a big fan of your show. Yes. Uh, we're going to get into a movie. We've got a great movie to discuss. It's one of my all-time favorites. I was so, so delighted to have this uh, chosen for us, and I thought it was the perfect one to have you on the show for. Sean, you, we've been waiting to have you on for a long time. Uh, we've been on your show before talking about Dick Tracy and had a lot of fun, uh, but it just uh, the stars haven't aligned until now. So this is, uh, this is a good, good day, my Absolutely. friend. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about your show and where they can find you on the regs when you're not here talking to us idiots? <laughs> sure yeah cheap seat reviews the podcast that explores the hollywood film industry for the greater good we've been doing this since january of 2014 uh we wow. just released as of about an hour ago <laughs> as we start this recording episode 414 and uh Dude, yeah. yeah we've been doing it a That's while awesome, yeah. for Congrats. those that don't know sean is one of the legends in this indie the podcast og industry. podcaster <laughs> uh, I, I just yeah, yeah he was the the one that we were all looking up to when we were getting into it, uh, he was probably, you know, wiping the sweat off his brow saying, oh, God, when we all jumped in the fray during quarantine. But because uh, he had already been doing it for several years prior. <laughs> You're on a couple but, yeah. hundred episodes in at that point, right? Well, the, <laughs> he, he's the godfather of all of it. So we we love him. I for do it. appreciate you saying that. No, the, the only part about me, you know, rubbing my brow when all these other podcasts jumped in because the pandemic is like, oh, they're all better than mine already, which is great. So that's fine. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. You're, we've, you're I, I admittedly not to kiss your ass because you're on our show but uh admittedly you were the one that we were all looking up to saying how does he do it so um to have you here is is very flattering and, and uh, sincerely we appreciate well i very much Absolutely. appreciate that thank you the check's in the mail <laughs> <laughs> cool well hey uh, we've got a movie to look at here so uh why don't I go ahead and throw you a description from google on this guy before we jump on this trailer Greedy executive Sidney J. Musburger hopes to take control of the company he works for by purchasing a majority share, but he must first devalue the stock. So he convinces the board to appoint no-nothing recent graduate Norville Barnes. 
But Musburger's plot backfires when Barnes' latest invention succeeds, thereby increasing the company's value. Worse yet, undercover reporter Amy Archer has the scoop on Musburger's shady dealings. That's not exactly a summation of this film, but also this film is kind of all over the place. There's a lot jam-packed into the roughly two hours. We're going to talk about all of this stuff, but first, Ryan, I need to know, what did you think about this movie? Holy crap, those are words uh, I wait to hear once a month from you, Jason. I will be glad to tell you right after this trailer. Once upon a time, the American dream was power, wealth, and success. But in the city that never sleeps, the American dream is about to get a wake-up call. Just got hired today. You know, entry level. But I got big ideas. When the president, an owner of 87% of the company's stock, drops. Then the company, too, has a problem. What we need now is a new president. Some jerk. I like it on fire. We can really push around. Yo! Yeah, yo, boss! This letter was sent down this morning by the big man himself. Sit down, son. Go ahead. Try it out. Did the Fortune City go an idea man when they promoted you from the mailroom? Well, I guess so. I don't think they promoted me because they thought I was a schmo. <laughs> The guy's a real moron. Cigarettes? No, thank you. What an imbecile. Come up with this. From Joel and Ethan Cohen. It's fun, it's healthy, the kids will just love it, and we put a little sand inside to make the experience more pleasant. Did you have any idea there'd be such a huge response? This is the president. Oh, I don't think anybody expected this much hoopla. <laughs> Comes a comedy of fame. <gasps> Fortune. Whoa. Sex. What? Greed and the American way. Say, Amy, how about you and I grab a little dinner or a show after work? I was thinking maybe the king and I. Uh, how about Oklahoma? Tim Robbins, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Paul Newman. I'm getting off this merry-go-round. Plexiglass. The Hutsucker Proxy. All right, now, Ryan, I really, I, I know you said this is kind of one of your all-time sort of favorite movies, or at least it was when you were younger, but, you know, what do you think about this movie? Does that still hold the case today? Did you like this movie as much this time yes. around as you did before? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I know uh, the reviews on this one are kind of divide, like, they're all over the place. Yeah. Um, even Roger Ebert only gave this two stars. Oh, so. Wow. Uh, when it first came out when Roger Ebert was still with us. So, um, yeah, you know, Coens are, are kind of a weird thing, right? Like you either are, are on board or you're not. And this is a very Cohen-y movie. Sure. Um, I would put this in the likes of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, the, there are some like halfway Coen brother movies like, uh, you know, maybe oh, um, No Country for Old Men or, or you know, a True Grit, stuff like that sure. that are, you know, kind of have twinges of their genre. But, um, man, they, they were... Full throttle Cohen's on this one, and, you know, in the way of Big Lebowski or, um, or, or uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So you're either in or you're out on this one. And I was all in. They are my thing. And I still feel strongly about it. Uh, some people feel that they have, um, you know, they're, they're more style than heart. Sure. And uh, I could see that, but it's my style. So I'm in. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> It's just my thing. Very nice. And Sean, so uh, this was, I believe, your first time watching this movie. Is that correct? 
So actually, no. Um, <laughs> so when you <laughs> oh, it isn't okay. My intel was off. Thankfully, no. uh, uh, thankfully, the intel in the North Pole was better. But please do tell. So you messaged me a little while ago and said, "Hey, uh, you know, this is the movie we're going to have you do. Have you seen it?" And I'm like, "No." And I, I, you know, I did a search for it on IMDb. Like nothing from it was familiar. Right, the actors, the concept, nothing from it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pause and then say, there are a handful of movies in my life that I have seen that I don't remember the names of or anything like that. I just have moments, like little like gifts that roll in my head of these of these moments, right? And I don't mm-hmm. I don't know the names of them. But one of them was this movie about a guy who wanted to invent the hula hoop, you know, for kids. And <laughs> and I and I didn't know anything about it. All all I could remember was it was this guy who had a circle. He just had drawn this perfect circle on a piece of paper and he kept showing it to people as if people would know what that means, right? It's just a circle. And mm-hmm. and circle is like a huge that like just a circle is like a huge, you know, uh, plot device throughout the whole movie because like every time there's yeah, a circle like something a gag. yeah it's a running gag every time there's a circle something's about to happen right and mm-hmm. so anyway so so that's that that so there's that that's a little backstory of me so this movie starts and the you know the the, the guy jumps out the window I'm like wait a minute I'm having a very strong sense about this movie and then enter <laughs> enter Tim Robbins and then he does that when he first pulls out that piece of paper and uh, the the first moment where I really was like, wait a minute, I have seen this, was in the mailroom, and he's talking to the old man. He's like, I've been here 40 years, and next month I get promoted to you know parcels or whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, I have seen this movie. And then when he pulls out the, the piece of paper, and he goes, you know, for kids, I, there were moments in this movie I could quote. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, it's, it, I'm, I'm 40 wow. years old. It's probably been... I mean, this movie came out in 94, so I probably, my parents probably rented it or something, or maybe it was on like HBO or, or some, you know, movie channel in, so like 95, 96, so I would have been high school-ish, middle school, okay. high school. So I've probably seen this movie four or five times. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. I mean, I, I'm like message because i usually watch the movies with my wife but i had to watch this one kind of late last night so she she'd already fallen asleep so when she she woke up she's like hey so how was watching movie i'm like i've seen this movie this was it was great so (laughs) it's a fun time awesome you liked it oh my gosh man so (laughs) this movie like you said this is one of those movies that like you just you love it or you hate it and uh, I again thinking walking into it having no expectations of it, I was just like, okay, here I am for it. But then once I realized that I had both seen it and liked it originally, it was like it was like a uh, you know getting like comfort food or something. You know, like it was yeah, yeah. You know, it was just one of those things where it's like like it's one of those memories, right? We, like you have memories of as a kid, like a smell. Smells are really powerful for for memories. Um, mm-hmm. so it was like, as I'm watching it, it was like a warm blanket again going, wait a minute. I remember really enjoying this. So I had a blast. <laughs> I was laughing. I love all of the, there's a lot of physical humor in this movie. A lot of physical gags. I mean, just watching mm-hmm. her slap Bruce Campbell was made me laugh. <laughs> um, fantastic. I mean, yeah. and, and it looks like she slaps him. I mean, that looks real. 
Uh, I, I'm pretty sure. Bruce I would be surprised. Is- I mean, they they ran Bruce Campbell through the ringer for the Evil Dead movie, so he's like, yeah. slap on the face. Yeah, that's nothing, man. Yeah. I thought you were gonna ask me to jump through three windows into some you know boiling water, which I would have done, but yeah. you know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so to to your credit, John, uh, this is you know one of those famous adjacent movies. You know, like um, I put this in the same category as like The Burbs with Tom Hanks. Yeah. Where we know Joe Dante from, you know, these huge movies like Gremlins and the same way that we know the Coens from big movies like Fargo and Big Lebowski. Uh, but then he goes and makes a movie like Burbs or Inner Space that mm-hmm. kind of slipped through the cracks. And maybe some of us have seen it and maybe some of us haven't. Uh, and there's a lot of trademark uh, things about this film that are very distinguishably Coen brothers. Uh, you know, you can't really separate this from the lexicon of their film history. But, uh, but yeah, I, I feel like not enough people have seen this. Um, and uh, to me, this is one of their best. I can't tell you why it's certainly one of their largest budget films, uh, with Joel Silver jumping on board. I'm sure we're going to discuss that when we get into it, but, uh, you know, they had the full studio backing. This is coming on the, off the heels of Barton Fink, uh, and precedes Fargo in their library. So, uh, and then they would go on past that to do the Big Lebowski and be all super famous, and we would all know who they are. But uh, yeah, I saw this very young. This may have been the first Coen Brothers movie I ever saw before I even knew. To, to your credit, Sean, exactly like what you're saying. Before I even knew who the Coens were and who Tim Robbins was and all of that. So um, this was. Right before Shawshank Redemption, so Tim Robbins was coming off of things like uh, what the Player and stuff like that. So um, you know, Bull Durham, and so you know, I was pretty young back then, so I was still figuring it all out. But I, I do remember loving it, and I still love it. I'm glad that I got to see this, and, and we get to discuss this a little further. Excellent. All right, well, let's go ahead and let's dive into the film proper so we can start looking into exactly what it was that we all responded to about the film. Ryan, I just need a good place for us to start. Yeah. At the beginning. At the beginning. Now, when we open, we see a cityscape of snowy New York circa 1958. It's New Year's Eve, and we have a narrator who comes on and tells of life in the city. As the camera floats through at a bird's eye view, we get a single tracking shot that lasts a couple minutes, and it proceeds to go all the way to a close-up of a gentleman who is stepping on the ledge of a window outside of a very tall building. This gentleman is Norville Barnes, played by Tim Robbins, who is the protagonist of the film. Once we do get that long push in, we get a cut to the credits. Now, right off the bat, I think that the one thing that this film does introduce before anything is the art style. It's got an art deco influence, and that's going to be consistent throughout the film. And I believe it's probably one of the stronger selling points of the film, at least for me personally. I very much responded to the art direction, the set design, the costuming, the look and the feel. It's kind of like the 50s, not on acid, but like the 50s by way of Chuck Jones and Bugs Bunny, right? It's a, it's a Looney Tunes-ized version of... 1950s America. So before there is we, so much Bugs Bunny stuff going on in this movie, I can't wait to talk about absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah, and we and we will get into that. But Sean, I want to start with you first. What did you think about the art style specifically? Is that something that you responded to strongly, or not really? No, I I dug it. I really did. I um, it reminded me a little bit of Tim Burton Batman meets 
Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of that a little bit over the top. I mean, it's not fantastical like those two movies because those two movies live in a really ridiculous world. But it was a little bit like that. Like specifically, the the, the first time you really kind of get a sense of it is the when the the guy jumps out the window, right? Like mm-hmm. they when they have the conversation in a few minutes about how he jumps out. You know, he he went forty floors, forty one. Don't forget the mezzanine. Like you, you hear that, and the, and they do that bit like six times, which was hysterical. Yeah, like that's what I love about the writing. And I know I'm shifting, but like the the writing does that, where they'll introduce a bit, and then they just there's that guy that just repeats it. You know, it's just yeah. don't forget the mezzanine. You know, and then like later on in the episode, like later on in the end of the movie, they're talking about. How he he rose all the way to the 40, 40th floor. Don't forget the mezzanine, like that gag runs. Yeah, anyway, the, the nice callback. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a you know set up the the bit and then have the punchline. But to your point, yeah, specifically, no, but I'm sorry, you're you're very right though. Like the the whole nature of repetition uh, yeah. is a very sort of strong visual motif that they use, right? Or or even an audio motif because it just reminded me that in a you know five to ten minutes we're gonna be in the mail room. And the orientation trainer guy just keeps repeating, they'll dock you, they'll dock you, they'll dock you, right? Later on, we see the stickers that are coming on and off in quick succession. So, yeah, it's a very interesting point. You know, there's a lot of intentional repetition as a either storytelling device or a comedic device. Yeah, it it, it comes across very funny. But back to the art style. um, Yes. It it is really, they do a very good job of, you know, creating... So, like, specifically when, when the guy jumps out the window, right? Like, it took him, like, four minutes to fall down that building, right? It was a very long <laughs> flight. You know, it was long enough that he could wipe the tears from his eyes and then ask people to move out of the way, right? Like, you know I'm saying, like it was a very long thing. I and mean, it was comedic, right? Yeah. It was a suicide that was kind of funny. And it was uh, the coyote from uh, yeah. Roadrunner, right? Like it, it would <laughs> freezing yeah. in the air, right? Had time to think about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he could have easily held up a little sign, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the only way it would have been, I think, probably too comedic, uh, where they would have lost you, is if like they would have made like a a shape of him into the in the pavement. You know, they, like they showed, <laughs> or, they, or he left like a like a smoke shadow, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like he drops, and then like his form still stays there and white, and then dissipates into the air. Or, or no, no, I mean like like in the like in the in the concrete where where you see oh, the, like after you, he hits, he the, hits, like the outline, and then yeah. and the woman screams. <laughs> the camera pans down instead of going up, and it's like his shape <laughs> in the concrete, like he sank down. You know, like, <laughs> like that's that's the bit that like a full cartoon. They didn't go full cartoon, Absolutely. which I appreciate. But some of the other this is the art one styles, time they didn't. yeah, like the, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> but some of the other art styles are really interesting, like uh, Paul Newman's office. Right? I mean, everything about that office screams power, masculinity, and you know, like all of those things. And it's just sure, it's really kind of great. You know, just that. Um, that the the Newman's cradle. What's it called? The the balls that go back and forth. What's it called? Um, yeah, I love that too. I don't know what they're called. I always just call them momentum balls. But sure, I don't know. That probably thinking- sounds like 
<laughs> it relates more to your testicles than it does to some sort of desk tchotchke, but like, <laughs> but yeah, where he like the moment where he yells at the guy on the phone and like the, or he says, hold on. And then like the balls actually stop moving yeah. like mid swing. Yeah. That was fantastic. Yeah. There's a lot of funny, bits, <laughs> but I mean like who wants to have an office where you're looking out the clock face, you know, it's just. Yeah, it, there's just a lot of that's just really, really clever stuff. So anyway, I, I highly Definitely. yeah, the art style was great. Awesome. Now, Ryan, I believe you actually have some very interesting behind the scenes information for us about the models that they used for the city, the cityscape. Is that correct? Yeah. So they went uh, full boat on the on the miniatures for this cityscape. Um, it's pretty crazy. The stuff that they, that they're doing here. Uh, what we haven't even talked about yet is Roger Deakins shot this, sure. uh, with them and the great Roger Deakins. And the first, uh, by the way, of, I believe 12 collaborations to this day. Uh, I believe he shot Barton Fink, um, and then went on from there to go do pretty much the rest of their library with them. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then right, right after this, I think he went on to go do Shawshank, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, no, he, uh, um, he's, he's, he's done 12 of their films, the Coen brothers films, Roger Deakins has, right. it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying this is like early, early Roger Deakins Second before film? we yeah. knew him. Yeah. From, from Shawshank Redemption and some of the things that, uh, he went on to go crush and then, uh, of course, I've talked on the show about uh, he won his first Oscar um, for Blade Runner 2049. So um, the guy's been doing this for a long time. And uh, yeah, so in this first scene, when they're doing this first push into the clock tower, as you're discussing, um, those were all uh, huge miniatures that they're pushing in through um, to the clock tower. And uh, there are various scales. The overhead stuff, when they're going over the top of the cityscape, um, they actually had to turn the miniatures on their side and they have half the city scape hung from the ceiling and half coming up from the floor. And they oh, wow. would just dolly track, uh, along the roadside and stuff. And then Matt painting in all the cars and people down on the ground and so forth. Um, of course, Charles Durning's fall that we're discussing, uh, was all done against blue screen, uh, and they shot, uh, the, screaming down the uh, building uh, against the huge miniature. And they did that, you know, in slow motion or, uh, you know, high frame rate and then uh, sped or slow frame rate and then sped it up later Mm. to create a feeling of uh, intense speed. But um, even the snow that they were using in the opening sequence had to be super small snow, which created all these problems of how to get the dynamics and the snowfall looking just right, Mm. because it was a practical effect. But when you're creating snowfall against a miniature, the snow has to be smaller, which then creates a whole new bucket of syrup that you got to get yourself out of. So (laughs) um, yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible. And then, so when they were finished, the model makers normally, so they shot all this actually in your home state of North Carolina, Sean, um, over in Wilmington at Carol Co. Studios. And uh, when they were done, they were going to scrap the buildings and models all together and just burn it all down. Uh, and the model makers were really upset about that because they worked so hard creating this whole city. And they said, uh, talked to the line producer and said, you know, you could probably sell these or lease them out or reuse them. You probably don't want to scrap them. And they said, you know, you got a point. And at the time... They were prepping to go into production at first on Spider-Man that was going to be directed by James Cameron. Uh, And then that project didn't end up uh, becoming a thing uh, until it got picked up by, oddly enough, Sam Raimi, who co-wrote this film with the Coens. Uh, But then also um, they were prepping Batman, Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. And uh, this ended up becoming a part of Gotham City, 
so to your point, uh, Sean, this actually was part of Gotham City, not for Tim Burton's Batman, but for Joel Schumacher's Batman film. Wow, these models have been around. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is their first appearance. This is where they were seen first, and then they became Gotham and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it's a fun little little bit of trivia. We have seen this city of New York many times. Interesting. Awesome. Now, when we're introduced to Norville, our protagonist, he's this bright-eyed young man. He looks like he just got into town or just graduated from college or something like that. He's looking at a job board, which, by the way, is the coolest job board I've ever seen. I certainly right. wish <laughs> kicks the crap out of Indeed. Let me tell you that much. And he's looking at these things. They're all flipping around, and he's quickly realizing that he really doesn't have any experience, as I'm sure a lot of our recent college graduates are unfortunately having to realize themselves as well. So despite whatever degrees or anything he might have, he's going to end up in the mailroom very shortly. Now, after this, we are introduced to the board of the Great Hudsucker Corporation, I would imagine it's called, or something similar. Hudsucker Industries, actually, I think it is. And not only do we see that it's one of these boardrooms that has, you know, 12 to 16 different members, uh, we are also introduced to the head, Mr. Warring Hudsucker himself, played by Charles Durning. Very small but very memorable performance. By the way, Ryan, before we continue, I don't know how we did not reference this at all in the Sweet Smell of Success episode, but did you think about Sweet Smell of Success at all? And the fact that that's a 1957, or right about when this movie is supposed to take place, drama about a newspaper baron named J.J. Hunsucker? There is literally. Oh no! I think we did mention that. Did we? Because Hudsucker and Hunsucker are right there. Yeah, yeah. Because we talked about other films that it would that it reminded us of, and uh, of course we went to the you know His Girl Friday and and uh, you know Casablanca and all the fast talking uh, Howard Hawks films sure, and stuff like yeah. that. But um, you know, to me, this is this is the you know the the. Sturgis, Capra, Hawks movie for my generation. This is that before I was able to dive into those old style films, uh, you know, as I got older, I saw this. And so this was that for me. This was kind of that for my generation. And so um, when I think of those fast talking characters and that spitfire dialogue and all the witty one liners and stuff like that, I think of this right along with those because it was what I was introduced to first. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. There's a, a weird you have to you have to imagine the. Yeah, they took they some inspiration did that with some right? level of wink and nod. Yeah, yeah. right. Because not only that too, I don't think it's a it's a coincidence. But so you have, uh, which by the way, Sean, if you don't know what we're talking about, and to any of the audience members that don't as well, earlier this season we covered a film called Sweet Smell of Success. It's about a newspaper baron, very powerful, and a press agent who's constantly by his side. The newspaper baron is named J.J. Hunsucker, which is obviously very close to Hudsucker. But the other interesting wrinkle, and the reason I think that it's a wink and a nod, is because Musburger, the Paul Newman character, his name is Sidney. And the second the second character, the uh, what's his name, Tony Curtis character in Sweet Smell of Success, his name is Sidney too. So I, I would have to think. Oh, that I didn't realize. Yeah, so I would have to think that it's a little more than a coincidence. Plus, the Coen brothers are totally those wink and nod type filmmakers that would do shit like that. You know, sure. So right now we see all of these people. They're sort of crowing about record profits back in the boardroom. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Warring Hudsucker gets up 
stands on the table in a very Looney Tunes movie, revs himself up with the old cocked leg and leaned in shoulder (laughs) and then proceeds to run in what I imagine is as fast as he can, which, by the way, for having those shoes and not slipping on a clearly polished board table, he's a little more dexterous than I think people gave him credit for. Either way, he runs down the length of the table, jumps out the window, proceeds to fall all the way down, and stops short of Tushan's point, leaving that indentation in the sidewalk. We get a nice shot panning up from where he landed into the screaming face of one of the onlookers. And... From there, we immediately go back to the boardroom through the broken window. We see Paul Newman, who is the Sidney Musburger character. He's watching, stoic expression on his face, no emotional response, smoking a cigar. His immediate response, well, looks like there's a new boss in town, and guess what, guys? It's me. And his advisor lets him know that without a succession plan in place, all of the stock of the company, Hudsucker Industries, will default to being made publicly available. So anybody can get in on this. And obviously that takes away potentially controlling interest of the company from Paul Newman and Associates. So they devise a plan. They're going to stop this whole releasing the shares to the public initiative. And they are going to work to basically tank the stock to make the company make a succession of horrible moves that create the impression that the company's going under now that the – Founder has passed away, and then what they're going to do is go in and buy all of the stock at a deflated value, knowing that it's going to ramp back up, and everyone's going to get nice and wealthy, and they're going to be able to maintain their controlling interest. Now, as I mentioned, with that rev up, with the way that Mr. Hudsucker falls through the building, we touched on it a little bit ago, Looney Tunes vibes, cartoon vibes, very, very heavy Throughout this film. So, Sean, I'll go ahead and go to you and ask. There are certain people out there that feel that the cartoonish nature of the film is maybe a little much and works against it, while others would argue that it makes the film what it is. The film succeeds because of these very qualities. Which camp are you in or are you somewhere in between? I think it totally works. I it makes it more fun because if otherwise it's just a yeah. white collar crime movie, right? And yeah, and then you just and you just don't care, right? Because it's if it takes itself seriously, then it's just oh, okay. Well, it's it's a bunch of rich white people trying to find a way to make themselves richer, and well, I guess they can't be whiter, but richer. And <laughs> so I I like the cartooniness. I like nice. All of that stuff. I, I you you skipped over it, and I want to go back to it though, real quick. Yeah. The 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 I the indie job board. Okay. So some of the jobs listed were cats meets man, goaltender, goat herder, <laughs> gutter sweep, and rope braider. And the two that I saw that really stuck out in my brain was card shark. That was an actual job on there. A card shark <laughs> and a bombardier. Bombardier. <laughs> That's also very era appropriate, right? Like yeah. Those are two very strong, like they give you the impression of being set in the 1950s. Yeah. I just, I, I really, the, the shot, the shot that they did for that was just, I really enjoyed, you know, it shows this thing going and it's quick, right? I mean, you get about 10 yeah, seconds yeah, to, 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 yeah, make the thing. And then he, 
and they move, and all these guys come up, and then they see something, and then they're, they're like, "Yeah, I can do that," and then they leave, and he's just there looking with this look of, "Oh, I, I can't do anything." Right. So, yeah. And they have him kind of elevated. So he's taller than everyone. So everyone's kind of coming and going around him. But he's just right there with that kind of dumb look on his face. And then the symmetry of the composition. It, it does help that Tim Robbins is like six, four or something like that. Like in, in yeah. Hollywood terms, <laughs> he's a giant. No apple box is necessary for that shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Ryan. Uh, I'll go to you, too, because I know we've talked about it before that, you know, you are all about some Looney Tunes sensibilities in your live action films. So I would have to imagine that this really worked for you as well. Oh, absolutely. This was so that the Coens stopped just short for me at times, not in all their films, but definitely in this or or something like uh, Big Lebowski or or Oh Brother. Um, th- I, I kept thinking of the, have you ever seen what's opera doc? With, um, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny kill the wabbit and all of that. And where he's yeah. like doing the hair tonic on the scalp. So, so many times. Sean, you, know. you know that one, right? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Kill the wabbit. Yeah, exactly. Wabbit. We've, all, we've all seen it so many times. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so glad that you brought it. Go ahead and make your point. But then before you move on, come back to me. Cause I'm going to want to add to it unless you say exactly what I was going to, which is possible. Yeah. I mean, you see it in stuff like, um, the, the bowling alley dream sequence in uh, Big Lebowski, you know, is very Looney Tunes-esque. Uh, but this, um, the music oftentimes is very operatic, even uh, especially so, and I'm sure, you know, I'm skipping way ahead, but in the introduction of the hula hoop uh, midway through the film, um, you know, there's a full-on opera or ballet uh, track that plays out almost in its entirety. It's a big, long, very famous song called the saber dance that we'll get to but um yeah it's all very there's even a weird ballet dream sequence in this yes that's uh, so that's the one that i was all this bugs- talking about dude i wanted to bring that up because i feel like that is actually from that cartoon like i don't know if this is just one of those things that i can envision in my head or if it was actually from the piece itself but isn't there a part of that what's opera doc it's that dream sequence, but done in cartoon form where Bugs Bunny's the girl and Elmer Fudd is sort of trying to pine after him and keeps like running to him or her, you know, Bugs oh, Bunny. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And she yeah. goes away and like, I, I'm pretty sure. Bugs Bunny and even the, is the, in the drag and he's running away and playing and, coy. Yeah. yeah, like the way he's sort of mugging it up. And I, I'm pretty sure that sequence They run up, up to a cliff exactly and he's wearing the big tunes. Viking hat. Yeah, totally. Yes. So, yeah, I, I totally picked up on that. And then isn't there a part in Big Lebowski with Maude wearing yes. a Viking hat? And has the two long the... braids coming down on either side, too, I think. Yes, correct. <laughs> so it's all very they what's offered. That. Like, they probably just like one of their favorite episodes of anything. They probably just like watched that on repeat as kids. What's up? Absolutely. Doc? And I loved it. Me too. And the. Then you get like when the board member goes to try to run out the window later in the film and hits the plexiglass yeah. <laughs> that Paul Newman has had installed and he smushes his face against the plexiglass and like the slow slide yeah. down yeah. the plexiglass. You even get the streak, the streak sound. Very, like, the streak <laughs> sound. Yes. It's all very Bugs Bunny, Chuck Jones homage. And I loved it. Absolutely. Now we will touch. Let's go ahead and let me give a little bit more about the narrative and then we'll kind of throw 
the sort of alternate view of this at you guys and see how that relates to your experience. So Norville ends up getting hired in the mailroom. He receives this very hasty training that we touched on earlier, where it's mostly just this person yelling at him for the various offenses from which he will be docked pay should he make them, which is pretty much anything you could possibly do or any mistake you could make. They'll dock you! That's that guy. And then as they're in there, this sort of alarm blares and everyone quickly panics and runs away as this gentleman comes charging in. He's got a very stern look on his face, older guy. He's got a letter held up in his hand. It kind of reminded me of like an old FedEx commercial from the 80s or 90s. Like this letter absolutely positively has to be delivered overnight, except in this case, it has to go directly to the executive right away. It's called a blue letter. And while everybody else manages to scramble and escape, Norville is left holding the letter and has to go deliver it straight to Paul Newman's character. Now, Robbins is very much this sort of bumbling, sort of idiotic character through most of the film. He definitely inhabits that in this scene. And he goes to the elevator, makes his way up. This is where we're introduced to the buddy guy. His name is actually Buzz, but I just call him Buddy Guy because I think it's just one of the greater cameos that I've seen. There's something about the way that that guy delivers. Like so many of the characters in this film are caricatures, right? Like you said, the cartoons. The main characters, sure, but especially uh, the ancillary characters. We're going to go later. when When we're at a party later, there's a character that I believe is the direct influence of hedonism bot from Futurama yeah. that we reference all the time. <laughs> the, here we go, right? That sort of voice. I mean, but here and now. And you also have Yo Samity Sam is in there too, right? Isn't he there? Yeah. I, mean, he, he, <laughs> I say, boy, I say what you're doing with my money. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that investor scene where he's at the party, like yeah. you could tell all of them were like, you're this cartoon character, you're that cartoon character. Uh, Joel, what other cartoons do we like? Oh, yeah, 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 you're this guy. Do that guy. <laughs> it's fantastic. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. As far as for the here and now, once Robbins get into the office, he's very intimidated by Musburger's character. Sean, to your point earlier, it's this very sort of intentional staging where the room is very masculine. It's very minimal. It's this enormous room with almost nothing in it but like a single desk and a couple of phones so that everybody in terms of scale feels very small. When they're before him, right? And that's obviously intentional. We mentioned the awesome note about how when he yells on the phone to hold on, how those momentum balls, again, for lack of a better word, uh, freeze in the middle of their pendulum. And very quickly, instead of presenting him with the letter, Musburger with the letter, Norville gets kind of caught up in – he, like, accidentally ends up setting fire to this contract that <laughs> such a funny scene Musburger has been working on, right? And again, to those cartoonist sensibilities, right? Like he's trying to put it out. It's in the wastebasket. He can't get it out. So then he like grabs. <laughs> I do like the shot where because it's such a big room, we see him sort of run to the back of the frame, grab the water bottle out of those dispenser, right? those giant like 25 gallon water bottles that you have to put in the dispensers, like the Evian stuff. And he pulls it out, and of course it's leaking all over the floor as he like stumbles trying to bring it back to the wastebasket. And it takes him long enough that by the time he gets to it, all of the water has already come out. He ends up chucking it out the window. The contract's flying everywhere, and Newman's going to go ahead and jump out. 
But Norville also holds him back. And then we get what I think is a very funny moment, again, with the cartoonishness, where as his pants start tearing, he remembers having a conversation with the <laughs> tailor <laughs> about the insisting on a single take. Ryan, I immediately thought of you. I just saw you losing your shit at this scene because I was like, dude, this is such a Ryan yes. Siebold moment right here. We get two back-to-back flashbacks about <laughs> a, the stitching of a pant seam. Like, who does this? The balls that you have to have to, to, to do two back-to-back flashbacks about a pants seam is uh yeah, well and here's the funny thing about I, I that it. too is that it really narratively doesn't even make sense the first part of it makes sense it's newman's memory paul newman's character is remembering being at the tailor which makes sense and then his second memory is he's gone and he somehow knows that the tailor was like, I give him the second to stitch because he's a nice man, right? Like, <laughs> so, like, that's not what it is very... He wasn't there. He doesn't know that. Like, it was right, very weird right. presentation. But at this point, they're just like, look, it's a giant cartoon. This is why I bring this up, okay, is because there are people. So for the people who feel that this film doesn't work for them to the degree that it does for you guys. And myself to a degree as well, though I have to admit I'm not, I don't think I'm as enthusiastic about this film as you guys are for a lot of the reasons that have come up. And I'd like to start discussing those reasons. So there's an idea that it's so cartoonish that it kind of just plays loosey-goosey with a lot of the rules, as well as there's a certain lack of humanity that comes through as a result of being so cartoonish, right? And I don't even think that it applies to all of the characters equally because I think that there's actually a few different actors that come with different levels of that energy. So what I'll ask, uh, I'll start with you, Ryan, is what would your response be to people that say that the cartoonishness, while fun, was laid on so thick and the humanity was lacking that... You know, none of these were real characters. None of these characters are real people, you know, maybe with the exception of Paul Newman's character. There's a certain element of truth to his character. But everyone else, while as entertaining as they are, really are these caricatures of people. None of the very few, if any of them are real people. But it doesn't sound like it had an effect on uh, your response to the film, Ryan. Is that the case? Uh, that is the case for me personally. I definitely understand the argument. This this film is doing something, it's a high wire act where they're really straddling a line between screwball comedy. Of uh, They're doing like like we're saying, Looney Tunes. They're also doing a lot of Marx Brothers stuff here. I don't know if you've ever seen any Marx Brothers sure. films, um, but, but there's a lot of really exaggerated performances. And so... Um, even in the way that we're talking about uh, Tim Robbins character carrying the water jug all over this huge room and dumping the water over to where there's just a few drops left by the time he gets to the trash can on fire. I mean, it's just very um, slapstick. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you look at it from that point of view, I mean, would you watch a Looney Tunes movie or a Marx Brothers movie and say there's just no humanity in it? It's like, of course not. It's a slapstick screwball comedy, The Producers by Mel Brooks or, you know, something along those lines. But it's also trying to inject heart into that and make you care about these characters in a way that oh, maybe only the Coen brothers can. So 
I also would not ask you to watch a Looney Tunes film, uh, cartoon or, or a Marx Brothers movie and say, you know, what did you feel about the protagonist? And, you know, I wouldn't dissect Duck Soup on this show and talk about, you know, the character arcs and all of that because it's a screwball comedy and it's to be taken at face value and we move on. You know, you don't watch Young Frankenstein and, you know, really try to show pathos for the big knockers scene. You just laugh at the big knockers scene, right? And so they're trying to, you know, straddle some lines here because remember before this film, they've done Barton Fink, they've done Miller's Crossing, they've done Blood Simple, um, and their homies was Sam Raimi. So it almost seems like they're trying to, tra- like they, they see what Sam Raimi's doing with a lot of his like army of darkness around this time and his transition from horror slapstick screwball stuff into just straight ahead uh, over the top screwball stuff. I think they're just experimenting and seeing, okay, well, I like what he's doing. Um, and we have this huge budget to go play and, uh, they're giving us total, you know, free reign to go do make this film. And, uh, so they did. Um, and also let's not forget, I brought this up earlier, Sam Raimi helped co-write this film. So there's a lot of Sam Raimi slapsticky stuff going on here too, you know, in the same way that we've got, uh, in the same, you know, era of filmmaking, Ash, uh, from Evil Dead, you know, doing the this is my boomstick scene and all of mm-hmm. that, you know, with claymation skeletons. And so I think they're just, um, you know, tiptoeing around to see what they can get away with. It it, it was a huge box office flop. Sure. And uh, it was critically panned. So they kind of reined it in and went to Fargo right after this, which lost a lot of those elements. Yeah. Um, they had, uh, they played around with characters, um, you know, with uh, Francis McDormand's character and Bill Macy's character, stuff like that, like really exaggerated characters. But uh, but they got away from the slapsticky Looney Tunes stuff for a minute until they were able to go back to it with Big Lebowski and, and O Brother. But um, yeah, uh, you know, they tried some stuff. I think you know there were some times that it didn't work. But uh, I'm taking this sh- this this film more at face value and not really looking for deep seated character studies. This sure. is just a fun romp to me. Sure. Again, like I, I compared it to the Burbs earlier, yeah. you know, and, and that's kind of what it felt like to me with the, uh, was it the Klopeckis next door and all the zaniness that's going on with the uh, crazy, you know, uh, sun and, and burning the bodies and stuff. I mean, sure, you could look at it, you know, and there's a dream sequence where they're, you know, sacrificing people to the devil and stuff. And you could look at all that and really kind of like be like, whoa, what's really, what's, what's Dante trying to do? But he's having fun and it's a fun <laughs> film. Absolutely. We're going to explore this a little bit more. I do want to introduce the next scene real quick, which is my favorite part of the movie, as I'm sure it is so many other people's favorite part of the movie, probably arguably everyone's favorite part. The introduction of the lovely Miss Jennifer Jason Lee as Amy Archer, one of the better supporting characters Holy wow. to ever grace celluloid. She's just one of those characters that absolutely steals every single scene that they are in. That's the case here. When we're introduced to her, we've got this newspaper chief played by John Mahoney of Frasier fame, and he's demanding a great story from his team of news writers, which, of course, as you pointed out, features Bruce Campbell. But did everyone else see Mr. Mike Starr lurking there in the background of Dumb and Dumber fame? I did not. Yeah, the uh, yeah, he's a uh, he, he. I don't even know if he has one speaking rule. He might say like a quick like nah, blah, 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 something under his breath about Amy Archer. But yeah, he was kind of one of those guys back there. And when she walks in, she just 
takes charge, lets everyone know what's what, but does so in the most charming fashion possible. Before we continue to get into this, I do want to play a quick clip of that scene. Fake. Huh? I tell you, the guy's a phony. Phony, huh? Has a $3 bill. Says who? Says me, Amy Archer. Why is he an idea man? Because Hudsucker says he is. What are his ideas? Why won't they let anyone interview him? Genius. Five bucks says she mentions her Pulitzer. Why won't they tell us a single Again? solitary thing about him? You're on. And just take a look at the mug on this guy, the jutting eyebrows, the simian forehead, the idiotic grin. Why, he has a face only a mother could love. On payday. The only story here is how this guy made a monkey out of you, Al. Whoo! Yeah, well, monkey or not, I'm still editor of this rag. Amy, I thought you were doing that piece on the FBI. Jared Hoover, when will he marry? I filed it yesterday. Nice hire. Well, do a follow-up. Hoover, crime buster of Pennywise. And the rest of you mugs get up of your brains and get me that idea man story. Al, he's the bunk. I'll stake my Pulitzer on it. <laughs> okay, so yeah, if you hadn't seen the film... Her entire performance is like that. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It should have gotten a lot more attention than it did at the time. But as we talked about, this film didn't do particularly well, which worked against her. But through no fault of her own, she's amazing. She's wonderful. This is what I would like to bring up. And Sean, I'm going to go ahead and let you know my opinion of this and then see how you respond to that, which is that as much as I appreciate the cartoon sensibilities, I do think that there's something about the film that doesn't work with regards to the specific level of that energy that the different actors bring to the table, right? So what I would say, for example, is right out the gate, every background ancillary character is a 10-plus cartoon, right? Like I said, we're going to get into a lot of the different archetypes that they they go into. From there, you've also got Tim Robbins. Now, Tim Robbins, I would say, is definitely playing – really hard into the silliness, the slapstickiness. You get the sense that it's kind of his version of a Jerry Lewis character. Now, in my opinion, you've also got Paul Newman bringing a certain level of gravity, which is much needed to the character. But I think that it's not dissimilar to the character that he played in Road to Perdition, which is also a, a, a tonally a very different film that would come 10 years after this one. And then you've got Jennifer Jason Lee, who is... Definitely a caricature, but like the most realistic caricature that you've ever seen. It's very hard. So I guess all of that is to say that for me, there's a level of inconsistency. And, I, and that sort of keeps me from embracing this, oh, the whole thing is a cartoon, right? And part of that also stems from the nature of the relationship. Like you're, we're saying, okay, let's keep this at face value. But it's also very obvious that they're asking me to buy into this love story. Right. They, you always got to add that in for the studios. So they kind of they kind of, in my opinion, ham fistedly put this sort of love story in because, look, here's the thing at the end of the day. And this is where my problem with the film comes very succinctly. I don't like Norville. I don't think that he is an enjoyably bumbling idiot. I think he's just a bumbling idiot. And when you have that character end up being pined after from Amy Archer, who I respect and love. It's like, well, no, she's so much better than him. She shouldn't lower herself. And so then I sort of resent the nature of their relationship. Sean, what's your response to all of that? I know I was a little all over the place there, but just what's your response to everything I just threw? Uh, yeah, okay, so I'll, I'll hit 
the two main things that I was thinking of when you were talking. One about kind of the the character caricatures of the people, like they're not kind of at the same level. And yeah. and I kind of think I, I kind of took it as that they they're not, but they they can't be right because if everyone is a hundred percent over the top ridiculous, then I think you actually get bored with it because then it's just okay a hundred people yelling at you and you just get tired of it. So you need to have some subtlety. Though the funny thing is, is like Tim Robbins is like the subtle one, right? He's bumbling ridiculous, but he's quiet. And he's, yes, you know, he has very few speaking lines, really. I mean, if you think about it, especially compared to, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee, who has all of the speaking lines, right? She, <laughs> I, I, I made right. the joke that, uh, and my, by the joke, I mean, I wrote it in my notes. As I take notes, I usually ask questions or, or you know, write jokes for later. And the joke sure. that I wrote was, closed captioning can't keep up with her. She speaks <laughs> so quickly. <laughs> That's a yeah. great way to put it. Um, so, so like, like even so, like so. When I say is like everyone, I think everyone is a ten, right? I don't think there are real people in the world that are like anyone in this movie. Sure. But they're all what we think of when we think of these types of movies, right? When we think of the fifties, um, you know, these business magnates, or whatever. Like all of that, all of those board members, like none of them had an original idea. They would just pair it off of each other and stuff, and mm-hmm. and that was hysterical, right? They they were all one dimensional. Almost everyone in this in this movie is kind of a one dimensional character. Yes, absolutely. So to your point yeah. about about the love interest, I actually one hundred percent. I don't say I shouldn't say I actually I one hundred percent agree with you. I think the love story is bad because it's not earned. I always yeah. call out movies when the the hero and the woman, or I guess it doesn't have to be a woman, but when there's a love story that isn't earned, right? Sure. Like, mm-hmm. what has he done to earn her love other than to be, because he starts off as like the, just, he's just the nice guy. And yep. then she starts to realize, well, okay, he's actually kind of just a nice guy. He's kind of dumb, but he's a nice guy. But then he, when he goes down his spiral, when he becomes successful, right, and becomes a complete you know corporate douchebag, there's no mm-hmm. redeeming quality there, right? And then at the end of the movie, he's there drunk and being mad at her, and she's like falling in love with him. And we're like, why? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what he did. You know, it's not like he... He took this company. We, I do want to talk about the company if we can. I don't know if you have plans yeah. for later, but no, the no, company no, itself is a, is a cartoon character. But like, true. The fact that she, like, he doesn't, he doesn't invent the hula hoop and then decide to make the world a better place and the company a better place, right? He just falls in line with the corporate whatever and becomes this, you know, this stooge. So yeah, you're right. Not wrong. He's kind of an unlikable character. And doesn't really deserve her at the end, yeah. You know, now at the very end, he kind of he does have his redemption moment, but the redemption sort of it's yeah, more but, just like something fortunate happens to him, right? Yeah, that's it's, what I'm saying. I, his his redemption moment is a result of someone else's doing. Yeah, that yeah, benefits exactly. Him. It's not like he has the realization that oh, I'm supposed to be the good guy. I'm supposed, yeah. you know, like he doesn't have his. I always call it a Popeye moment, right? In in movies, primarily he, superhero movies, there's a moment in which 
usually the villain does something that triggers what we call the Popeye moment, which he has to overcome. Right? Nice. You know, Spider-Man yeah. Homecoming is when Spider-Man looks down. He's, he's The building is on top of him, and he looks down in the water, and he sees his reflection and Spider-Man's and realizes that he has to be both. And yeah. then, he is able, then he finds the strength to pick up the building. Anyway, so mm-hmm. end, of, end of paragraph. Now, the building itself, <laughs> this business, right? So you're talking about uh, not likable characters. Hudsucker, though comically funny, he creates this behemoth of a company that kind of sucks, right? Why yeah. would you create a company <laughs> in which when you have a moment of silence for the death of your founder, they dock your pay? Right, <laughs> that was great. I mean, it's a funny thing. It's funny to us, but like as I'm watching it, and I'm thinking about like this is a nightmare, right? The fact that this yeah. blue letter exists, the fact that his Hudsucker's office is physically next to Sydney's office, yet he has to send a letter down to the mailroom to send it back up to the. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> there's. You know, I never thought about that until this very moment. <laughs> this, this, bus- so this, this business has so much bureaucracy that it's insane. Yeah. Like later in the, there's a moment in the movie where she's mad at him because he's going to lay off like 400 employees or something. Like, mm-hmm. let's just be honest. There's probably 400 employees that don't need to be there be- <laughs> be- just because of the bureaucracy of the of this business. I mean, it's it's truly yeah. an a ridiculous business and i know we haven't gotten their uh timeline in the movie and you'll we'll get there in a moment when we talk about the production of the hula hoop and i yeah. and that scene is fantastic um, That's but also equally as ridiculous um yeah. and my last thing and i'll stop for a minute is uh sam raimi is actually in the mailroom yep he yep. has a he he's has one, a, i think he's one he of the, the voices right like doing the shadow where they're throwing around the names i think yeah yeah. yeah, dude, there is so much going on in that mailroom that I had to check to make sure I wasn't yeah. there. Like everybody's in that mailroom. That is a busy scene, and it is a long tracking shot down the aisle as he's getting those orders barked at him. And then we end uh, with a real quick cameo by uh, Pat Crenshaw, who plays uh, Blue from Old School. My boy oh, Blue. You're yeah, my boy he's Blue. the. Yep, yeah. that was him. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's the mail guy. Yeah. I was like, hey, yep. it's my guy. Okay. Yeah, the head mail guy. So uh, he's like, I, you, you, if you fold it, you get fired. So I just throw him away. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. love that line. But yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying. I think um, that uh, some of those issues probably could have been avoided if they set uh, Tim Robbins' character up a little better in the beginning. I feel like this whole film just jump starts so fast and we get thrown into the middle of this whole scene uh, this whole debacle of of Hudsucker committing suicide out the window and uh, Sydney taking over and then they need a proxy and then they find the Rube. Uh, but we never get that uh, save the cat moment um, where we set Tim Robbins up as a good guy. Yeah. So when we get thrown into him doing, you know, we, we get introduced to him as a Rube or as an idiot and then a village idiot of sorts. And then, you know, that doesn't really give us much gratification. I think by the end when he has his come to Jesus moment or his moment of redemption or whatever. And to your point, Sean, it's like a deus ex machina thing where it's like a hand of God saves him. He didn't even do anything to correct his actions. Um, 
I'll take it one step further. Charles Durning here. comes in as an angel and like, you know, has the blue letter thing. And there's that reveal of the, the callback, you know, back to the beginning, but uh, of the blue letter that, that he neglected, but he never really did anything to redeem himself. And he was never set up as that good of a guy to begin with. Uh, we do establish that he's like an innocent small town guy from Muncie, Indiana, a uh, bit of a simpleton. Yeah. But I think there could have been more to show redeeming qualities up front so that his fall from grace was more dramatic and we could see that he was being corrupted or brought to the dark side, more or less, if he had just had that save the cat moment at the beginning and shown as more of a stand-up guy. It could be as something as simple as him taking his jacket off and throwing it over a puddle so while a woman walks by or totally. something innocent and so, so stupid like that. But um, I think he needed more in the beginning to kind of establish his character as a good holy redeemable protagonist so that when we get through his character arc it's more of an arc sure thoughts yeah well, i'm gonna, I'm gonna jump keep... in here jason i'm gonna interrupt you because yeah, ryan please. you said something that i it triggered a, a a joke that i wish i was quicker on uh but it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work <laughs> in a podcast setting uh when you said with his fall from grace i wanted to interject fail <laughs> that, that bit cracked me up but every time he was, he was i don't know i know we'll get there but that bit cracked me up sorry go ahead jason <laughs> that was just a joke I wanted to interject. So there you go. Fair Absolutely. enough. So when we get to the scene at the diner where <laughs> Amy Archer first, by the way, every time I say Amy Archer, I want to say Amy Adams. Yeah, so right? if you're noticing a delay, yes. it's me telling myself not to say Amy Adams and to say Amy Archer. But so Amy Archer walks into the restaurant and we don't even hear their conversation. We just see it and it's being narrated by the two taxi drivers. I really love that scene. I love the way that it plays out. I love the way that the two yes. actors react and respond to the narration relative to what we're hearing. Jennifer Jason Lee obviously does a great job of doing a lot of face acting, let's say, for lack of a better word, right? Like nonverbal communication. And she she does have that perfect balance of being a cartoon without being a cartoon. She manages to feel more real, in my opinion, than a lot of the other characters. And I think it's just the way that she's able to communicate with her face in a way that's a lot less modeling than maybe some of the other actors are doing. Now, she then is able to get herself into Norval's office, right? And she plays up this sob story. He buys into it. When she's in there, he basically offers her a job and she accepts and she's going to end up using the insider information to write a scathing article against him. But again, the way that he sort of woos her is he does this very ridiculous preening Muncie dance that's supposedly the... <laughs> song from his college, right? The what do they call it? Not a fight song, but the alma mater song or whatever it is, right? And it's just this like yeah. super stupid. I'd even call it a fight song. Yeah, like it's this really intentionally dumb, silly. He's doing these moves to just look like an idiot. And again, it's like I don't watch that and go, oh yes, Tim Robbins is really the man here, right? And I get it. He's supposed to be a bumbling idiot, right? So let, let's back up a minute. So when he – setting up the character, Ryan, earlier you said that they don't do enough to set him up as a good guy. I don't think it's so much that. I actually think they set him up okay. I think it's where they take him because let's actually look at what happens from a story perspective. So when it gets to the point that he's you know made the hula hoop and he's successful and he's let everything go to his head, the sort of following progression is Buzz, the buddy guy, comes in. 
uses his own rationale to pitch him a new project. And in a very cruel fashion, Norville dresses him down for being in the same spot he was in just a few months prior and fires him. Okay, obviously this makes everyone upset. So later when he's out on the town and he runs into Buzz's character, Paul Newman had actually greenlit his idea. It ended up being successful. So Buzz ends up punching him out and the entire mob chases him to the building, at which point, you know, he goes and he's going to jump off. And then, you know, we get to the ending. We'll get to that later. But the point is he cruelly fires this guy, gets chased from all of them for being a dick and then goes and basically tries to kill himself, but is saved at the last minute when the angel of the previous owner comes down and basically tells him that by strict fortune, just strict good luck, he's able to retain controlling interest of the company, at which case he commits Paul Newman's character to a mental asylum and then invents the Frisbee. So, like, where is he a good guy? That's what I want to ask you, Ryan. Like, where, like, where, like, it, it's not so much in the beginning, but he, he, when, when we get the development, like, like Sean said, it's not really earned because he didn't really do anything good. Like, he could have very easily, the filmmakers could have very easily made it so that, you know, he raised pay for everyone or he got away with these draconian rules. Like, we could have gotten a few minutes of him making Hudsucker Industries a more amenable place to work and that would have given us some sympathy but they didn't do that and so that's where i think a lot of it doesn't succeed maybe we're he's not supposed to though i know you asked ryan the question but like maybe he's not supposed to be the nice guy maybe this movie isn't supposed to tell us that maybe this movie is just telling us that new york can turn nice people into horrible people and that's just the way it is and I mean, maybe I, 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 I don't. Know, I don't think that fits with the tonality, though. I wouldn't like. I, I don't. Mean, to it, me, that's not what I think it's trying to say. But I don't think it's trying I, to I mean, say that either. It's not Honestly, I'm not sure what the movie's factual. trying to say, other than things are funny. But you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's just trying to be like a silly, entertaining film, and that's great. You know, there's a lot of madcap sensibility, a lot of things to appreciate about that. But again, that dictates that you very much have to be into that sensibility. It's no surprised that this film didn't do well because this is a small niche. You know, most people are not like us. Like your average moviegoer doesn't appreciate old references and old movies and madcap sensibilities and crazy cartoon characters in their live action films. You know, there's, there's a large part of the mainstream audience that doesn't appreciate that. Well, let me ask you this, Jason. Um, let's go through, uh, you know, can you think of any Coen Brothers film that has a definable good guy in it. I mean, I think they're just street tales of normal people that things happen around in all kind of zany fashion. You know, I mean, whether it's George Clooney's character in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Or, um, you know, Big Lebowski, uh, you know, Jeff Bridges' character in The Big Lebowski, or, you know, uh, Bill Macy's character in uh, Fargo, they're all kind of anti-heroes or, or just normal schlubs. They're not really redeemable people with huge character arcs. Yeah. Um, and I think Tim Robbins' character here as Norval Barnes is no different. I think that, you know, this is a guy that things happen to. He doesn't really, he never really takes control of yeah. his own destiny. He's a passive So I will agree with you. Correct. I will agree with you that he does not deserve the femme fatale Amy Archer. By the end, although if you don't give him that, the film doesn't really feel like it resolves. Sure. 
So the film has kind of painted itself into an odd corner, I think, by that point where it needs something. The character needs something it never earned or deserved. Sure. So that that's I think you're damned if you do, damned if you don't there, because if if she moves on and finds herself, you know, moving past that, then th- th- that whole uh, relationship feels unresolved. So but but I do agree with you that it, that it's not earned. But at the same time, everything he, like I don't even know that he puts Sidney Musburger in a loony bin. I think that that was all set up for him and based on Sidney Musburger trying to kill himself, um, you know, by also jumping out of the window yet yeah. again, um, then, you know, that was all kind of just, uh, you know, we, we, that was a plant and payoff more or less that that was going to happen to Tim Robbins, Norville character. And then it ended up happening to Sydney's character, but I don't know that Tim necessarily or Norville necessarily set that up vindictively um, as a as a hate thing resolution or, or anything hateful. I don't know that he's got a hateful bone in his body. I don't think he takes control over any bit of his destiny. I think all these things are just overlaid on top of his character. He, like you said, he's a passive protagonist. He's just a a rube, a schlub. As we go through this, things happen to him and around him that he has no control over. Minus the invention of the hula hoop. Yeah. That's his one contribution, I think, to, or, you know, his major contribution to the plot. Absolutely. And then outside of that, that it's just a domino effect of the, the chain reaction of things that happen all around him. But he's being used by this board and by the company um, as a tool, uh, as a device. And so everything that happens is because of that. And so, um, yeah, I don't know that he's ever given the the freedom to move about the script in such a way that he could take control over his own destiny in many ways. Yeah. And, and to your, I do agree that that that's an unsatisfactory answer. I'm not saying that in defense of this script and saying, no, it's good because um, no, quite the contrary. I'm just saying that, uh, but, but I won't say that he was never set up as a good or bad character. I just think he wasn't set up as, much of a character at all. It's, it's more yeah. of us as the audience, maybe um, just kind of going through this as a, as the viewer, he's just a vehicle to get us through this story, maybe more or less. Well, yeah. But, and um, that, and that's kind of the whole point know. of the criticism, which is that when you like, as we acknowledged, these are one dimensional characters and rarely is that sure. used as a compliment right now. It works yeah. in the context of this, but again, you're it's, you know, what are you, what are you picking up and what are you giving up? Right. So you're picking up, yeah. you know, this humor, this madcap cartoonist sensibility, you're giving up an element of humanity and again, that's just a creative decision, an artistic decision, and you have to understand that that's going to not satisfy a lot of your audience or your potential audience at least. Right. But lean into it because you're doing it for the people that do get it, right? No, I mean, again, like I set up at the beginning of the show, Roger Eber gave this two stars. And his entire review, if you go read it, uh, it's actually pretty pretty interesting, is set up as a angel and devil on his shoulder. And he goes and interviews, uh, you know, back and forth between the two, um, stating more using that as a, a tool, more or less, to set up the pros and cons of this film. And the angel on his shoulder is saying, like, how hyper stylized this film is. And this, yeah. these are some of the best performances he's ever seen. It's the best world creation he's ever seen. And the actors are, you know, I mean, you got Paul Newman, Tim Robbins, Jennifer Jason Lee, Charles Durning, John Maloney. It's a cast list to be contended with sure. for any film. It's just over the top crank to 11 all the way across the board. But the, de- but the devil on his shoulder is saying, yeah, but if you strip away all the fluff, 
what have you really like the bones of this film aren't really anything to clamor about. So yeah. are you judging it by the bones or are you judging it by all the fluff they put on top of it? Um, I don't have an answer to that. Only that I personally enjoyed the shit. Out yeah. of it. I thought it was a very fun rub in, if you take it at face value, but maybe this is one of the, you know, again, this this might be one of those films that isn't best dissected. You just kind of have to watch it, let it wash over you and say, wow, that was great. I really enjoyed yeah. it. But then you bring it on a show like this uh, and you start to peel apart the layers of the onion and you're like, wait, what's that's all there was? Like it was just all smoke and mirrors, and, you know, and it you kind of get rid of the illusion uh, that the magicians were were pulling on you when you start to like slow down the magic trick and say, Oh, see there the cards up yeah. his sleeve. I could see it in that one frame. <laughs> then it like the, the magic trick doesn't work anymore. Okay, but that's a, and, but that's um, a legitimate criticism as well. You know, I mean, I think if you like, we, we will say that there's a degree of the filmmaker's reputation that I believe works for them here. Right. Because what you're saying is essentially, look, if you're going to enjoy this movie, just shut your brain off, baby. Don't think about it too much. Sit back and enjoy. And that's great. But you can also say the same thing as a criticism against a Michael Bay movie. Right. Why don't you like Michael Bay? Ugh, they're all dumb movies. They don't make sense. You just got to turn your brain off and sit there and enjoy it and be dumb to get it. That's not a that's not a. a it's not a positive attribute of your film. I'm not saying that this is specifically a bad film for that. I'm just saying that there are legitimate criticisms to be had about this film. And this all comes back to what you're saying, right? This is not a film for everybody. This is a film for a specific type of viewer with specific sensibilities and specific influences, which often date back. There are moments. Look, the funny thing is a lot of that old like 1950s veneer that they put on. I really didn't grow up liking that stuff, but I liked media that itself was influenced by that. So, so many times we've talked about Looney Tunes. I can't tell you, though, how many times I thought of a show that I grew up on and watched all the time, Ren and Stimpy. There were so many Ren sure. and Stimpy moments, especially when it came to the choice of music. Like the whole tidbits of the star sequence where we get that great John Goodman narration who I'm sure you guys all noticed yes. that was him and it's in black and white and it's got the fifties music and, Oh look, we're seeing mom and she's doing her vacuuming. Hey mom, how's the new Oreck? <laughs> right? Like they just nail that right. stuff. Right. And I love it. I love that stuff in a vacuum. I love that. Like just show me that as a three to five minute short in it without any context. I get it. And I love it. Right. And so there were a lot of things that I really liked, but I do kind of get that Roger Ebert response because that was very much, I had a push pull with this film as well. And every single time that I loved it, once you start breaking it down, there's a lot of really incongruent aspects of this film. One of them is where we get to the next moment. We're about halfway through this narrative. Hopefully we're not halfway through this episode because we're going long, but we're about halfway through the narrative. And this is the moment when Norville finally pitches his idea for the hula hoop, which when you're going into a movie that has been pitched as a movie about the guy who develops the hula hoop, it's really weird to suddenly get that halfway through. There's also an element that we've talked about before where you can't escape the realities of the business where perhaps something worked as a creative decision but you were undercut by the marketing department that decided that they had to promote one of these big surprises, right? So, for example, I don't know how this 
The whole, Sean, you mentioned at the top how the one thing you remember is there's this guy who keeps showing this circle and saying it's a great idea, you know, for the kids. I have no idea how that joke lands halfway through the film if you don't know that this is a film about the hula hoop. By the time, the first time I saw this film, I knew that he invented the hula hoop. It has him on the cover holding the hula hoop. It's in the description of the film. So when he presents his circle, we already know it's a hula hoop. But go back to being one of the first people to see this at Cannes Film Festival or Sundance or wherever, and you don't know that. Is that moment funnier because you don't know already, right? Is it a better running gag when the marketing department hasn't given away the punchline ahead of the joke? So I don't know if there's an element of that, but I do think— I think it would be. But I do think it's really weird— To all of a sudden, halfway through your film, introduce what most people would introduce at the end of the first act, you know, half an hour in. So there are some things that are really odd about the way this film is structured. And I think that's... By the way, I I loved to just a really quick talk about that moment when he's showing his his vision of, of the hula hoop and he says, you know, for the kids. And then he looks at his own drawing of a circle and realizes it's upside down and it turns <laughs> it right side up. And it's a, it's a circle. <laughs> it's like, why was that upside down? I Absolutely. Love now, Anyways. Sean, you mentioned this before and I'll go ahead and ask you for your take on this. And that's after Newman sees the idea for the hula hoop, he thinks it's an idiotic idea and it's only going to tank the stock further. So he green lights it as soon as possible. And then we get a really entertaining sequence of the actual approval and production of the hula hoop. Sean, tell me what you thought about that sequence. Oh, I, I love it. And it, we've mentioned a little bit of, uh, we've already mentioned Sam Raimi. It kind of had a Sam Raimi feel where. Yeah. Now they weren't zoom cuts, but it's like, it's quick cuts, right? It's uh, the, the, the naming office, and then you just see this woman reading, you know, War and Peace, and 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 I think that gag because every time we come back to the these these two silhouetted men, very animated silhouetted men, coming up with really terrible ideas uh, for the name of this thing. Every time we cut to her, she's reading a different book, and they're huge books, right? It's like War and Peace, and then <laughs> yeah. like, the Grapes of Wrath or whatever. I don't remember what they all were. A- Anna Karina. Yeah. Anna Karina knows <laughs> like, one of them, and yeah, they're huge, like thousands. Right, so like the idea is that like this process has taken so long that she's yeah. read, you know, these massive novels, you know, you know, which, which again, th- that's a subtle bit, right? That's that you have. Yeah. Like, that's the thing that you have to pay attention to. So uh, I would actually argue that this isn't a thing where you have to turn your brain off. I think this is a thing where it, it gets better if you're actively engaged. That whole montage was yeah. I loved it. I love I love a good montage, <laughs> right? And if this were my podcast, I would play the, the montage sound clip that we have. But, yeah, montage. Uh anyway, there um, you go. yeah, no, the, the the whole bit is just fantastic. And I, I mean and I really like that they committed to it. They they went as far as to show us how mm-hmm. they make the thing. And then of course that montage spills into them releasing it to the public and then no one wants it. But then as you know, this movie does have several um, Deus Ex Machinas, with literally Bill Cobbs as being God in the machine. <laughs> Gravity and wind and the force make it so that this hula hoop finds a child, and not mm-hmm. knowing even what to do with it, he just picks it up and naturally does what a child would do: is play with it. And then all these screaming children see it, and 
uh, you know, apparently this toy store guy has nothing to do except stand outside until this horde <laughs> of children come in, which I guess they all have money for some reason to, to buy, <laughs> you know, out of his stock of hula hoops and whatever. So it, it was a really great bit. And I do have to name drop a little bit. So Bill Cobbs, who's yes. the actor that's in The Clock, I've met him. I, I worked on a nice. movie with him. Oh, awesome. cool. Ten years or yeah, so ago. he's one of those people that I I couldn't recall where I saw him. I just recognized his face and his voice. Yeah, one of those people that just pops up for a minute. I honestly thought it might have been Scatman Crothers, but then I was like, yeah. no, 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 it's not him. <laughs> <laughs> but he has well, a similar vibe to he does his character does. in The Shining a little bit. Now, when we get to the next sequence in terms of the narrative, this is right after the hula hoop has become a success, and Musburger reveals that he has actually sold everybody's stock, not just his stock, but the entire company's stock because he wanted to panic the markets to just drop it even lower so they could repurchase it at a lower price and make a ton more money. Except that, unfortunately, because the hula hoop did so well, the company's stock is at its highest point that it's ever been at, much to everybody's chagrin, even to the point that one of the board members is so taken aback that he decides that he's going to pull a warring hudsucker himself jumps on the table, runs, tries to jump through the window, but as Ryan pointed out earlier, it turns out that they had plexiglass installed recently, and so he just flattens up against it, screeches down the entire thing, peels off, right? Very cartoonish, as we've talked about time and time again. And this is right where Amy Archer, once again, not Amy Adams, but Amy Archer, comes into the office, and that's where, you know, Norville has made his sort of transition from good bumbling idiot to, as Sean said, corporate douchebag, right? And he's getting the massages and he's got a symphony playing in there and she comes in and she tells him off and, you know, you don't know what you're doing anymore, blah, blah, blah. This is that. You're not worth anything. Success has gone to your head. That's where we get that very brief, funny dance sequence that I talked about that reminded us of what's opera doc, the little Looney Tunes moment. And this is also right where, as we mentioned earlier, this is where Buzz comes in to pitch him his flexi straw and Norville cruelly fires him. Also, uh, the one thing we didn't mention, though, is while this is going on, the board is trying to figure out how the hell they can get rid of this Norville guy who's bumbled into success. And they basically want to have a psychologist come in and label him certifiably insane so that they can lock him up, which is really, at the end of the day, why I think they have Sidney's character committed at the end is it's supposed to be sort of a callback or a turning of the tables where they were going to have Norville committed and instead Norville has Musburger committed. Now, the other thing that happens here as well is we've also got somebody in the company figures out that Amy is not who she is pretending to be. She's not a Muncie girl. She's actually this reporter, which for someone who won a Pulitzer, you'd think would be a little more recognizable. But again, we're not we're not trying to really get into the nitty gritty here on this one. But basically, it was the 50s. There was no Internet. She was a woman in the 50s. Nobody gave her any credence. Right. What? No. A woman. Never. This is 1958. (laughs) Right. Yeah, like Bruce, <laughs> Bruce Campbell slaps her in the ass in the office, and she just punches him, which was great. Yeah, that's awesome. I do, I do <laughs> love that they give her the strength of like a '90s and beyond woman, while still being looked at as a '50s woman from all of the men around her. That's they do give her a lot of strength, which I think is just what makes her more likable, more charming. Uh, again, she she has a strength that Norville doesn't that I think we as an audience respond to, which perhaps is why there's an incongruency in their relationship. 
However, we also sort of have this film wrapping up. To your point earlier, Sean, you know, we see Norville and he's basically just drunk as hell at this beatnik bar. A very funny moment where he's demanding liquor. And we get a very young Steve Buscemi who informs him that this is a juice and coffee bar, sir. We do not uh, serve liquor there. And Amy finds him. And yeah, I mean, again, this is kind of why I, what I didn't understand, right, is why is she so apologetic to him and begging for another chance at this point. Like, she didn't really do anything to offend him. I guess it's really just a matter of she feels bad about deceiving him. But we don't really... That's the thing. She feels bad about deceiving him. But I don't think any of us, as members of the audience, hold it against her. Like, did you guys feel like, ah, I don't like this Amy. She's deceiving Norville. I never thought that once. I mean, it's a it's a trope that's in a lot of movies, right? Where where someone has to deceive someone else in order to gain trust or access or whatever. But usually in those movies, you know, they, they both end up kind of falling in love with each other and then the secret comes out and then, you know, you end up hurting one other, one another. It, it feels like, honestly, it's, it's like the, the plot line for about a third of Hallmark's movies. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And again, we don't say that as a compliment, right? We don't say a Hallmark movie like, Oh, that's a no, 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 no pun intended, but that's a Hallmark of quality entertainment. Right. Yeah. Like no, no, nobody says that, you know, yeah, it, it it's happens tend to look a lot. on derisively. Yeah. So, it, it does happen and this a is, lot, but just, you know, you just, you just got to roll the, with it, the, baby. You just got to roll yeah, with the, it. Yeah, the movie is trying to to elicit <laughs> those feelings, right? Because that happens again in a lot of movies. I, I, it happens so many times, though. I can't think of what it is. I'm going to have to look it up here in a little bit. But, like, I know there's 20, 30, 40 movies where this is a thing that happened, right? Where, Or, yeah. I mean, like, even, like, teen dramas, right? Like, uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. Like, the whole purpose of Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger was because of a bet or because they were paying him. Right, yeah. but then they actually do fall in love, and she finds out, and then she gets mad, then he has to do the grand gesture, and then whatever. <laughs> As seen in like every sitcom from 1976 to 1999, yeah. pretty much, right? Uh, and also in the infamous She's All That, same exact storyline. Yeah. Same, same storyline, yeah. So real quick, I, I want to jump in here because I think this is kind of a common so, – so to me, I'll ask sure. you, Jason, be, uh, you know – You've asked us a lot of questions. I'll kind of toss this back to you. Do you think that the things that you're saying about this film or some of the issues that you're taking with this film, um, not that you didn't like it, but just if you're, if we're going to pick sure. it apart and have issues with things and, and, you know, look at the underbelly of as this movie, um, as we do, do you think that applies to other Coen brothers films? Because to me, I think that the, the one of the Coen brothers biggest faults is that they make their villains so lovable that you never really root against anybody. Yeah. So you're always there. There's never really a moment where I'm rooting against, you know, uh, John Goodman as Walter and the big Lebowski or Steve Buscemi and Fargo. Yeah. I mean, um, Peter Stormare and Fargo, like those are, those are bad dudes. They put a dude in a wood chipper. They're murdering <laughs> guys and they've set up a, an innocent Rube and Bill Macy and all of these things, but you're still like along for the sure. ride. And, and then, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, you know, about it being all style and no humanity. I mean, I think that that kind of plays. I mean, do you feel like Jeff Bridges has a huge character arc in The Big Lebowski? Do you think he was set up as a hero archetype or a good dude? He was kind of a schlub that things kind of he was a passive 
protagonists like we talked about too, right? Like, I think that that may be just, unfortunately, the Coen brothers deal. Like, they kind of just do that in a lot of ways. Like, you never really root for or against a lot of their characters. You're just kind of along for this crazy, whimsical ride. It's a good point. Thoughts no, on no, that? no. It's 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 a very good point, and I'm I'm kind of trying to process what it is about Lebowski that works for me better than Hudsucker because you're right. They do both feature protagonists who are very passive and just get kind of swept up in these larger goings on, for lack of a better word. Right. I think it's a tonal thing. I think I think it's a matter of tone. I think that all of the elements sort of vibed just right in Lebowski. Right. Like. I don't think that you can point to any one character in Lebowski and say that they're bringing a different level of energy to their performance. They're bringing a different energy, sure, because Philip C. Hoffman's bumbling, docent character is different than you know Jeff Bridges' cool guy, is different than John Goodman's crazed over the top, is different than Steve Buscemi. Like, all of these people, right? They're all very idiosyncratic characters, but they do feel like they exist in the same world. I think that's probably what I'm responding to. And I do think that there you is... You don't think these characters do in Hudsucker? No, not really. Uh, I, I think that, like I said, I think that they're a little all over the place. I think that... And and I have to say this as well. We haven't touched on this. I've talked before on this show about how there's a very big difference between character and acting, right? Characterization can come from actors, yes, and is definitely involved in acting. However, it is also infused and imbued by the writer. The writer can is pretty much the one responsible for developing that and setting it up for the actor to run with it. I admittedly think this film works much better without Tim Robbins. Here's the thing about Tim Robbins. And and perhaps it's one of these issues that's unfortunate because it is sort of tethered to his public persona. And I don't always like to make that comparison. But Tim Robbins is a really smart dude, you know? And he has a very distinctive energy that is very serious. It's what makes him great as Andy Dufresne in Shawshank Redemption, right? When he's getting grilled up on the stand and they're like, well, isn't it pretty convenient that the gun is missing? And he's like, no, it's decidedly inconvenient because I'm innocent of this crime, right? He's always been these very sort of strong, intelligent characters And I think that this film is why we don't see him. Like, I think he's trying to be Jerry Lewis, but I think he's so not Jerry Lewis that it just kind of comes across as, I hate to use the word inauthentic because none of these characters are real, but I think that he is an inauthentic cartoon character, so to speak. I think that maybe you don't go full Jim Carrey, but... Interestingly, I think the perfect Norville is actually in this film, and it's Bruce Campbell. I think if you put Bruce Campbell in that Norville character, all of a sudden, the -the over-the-top cartoonishness that defines the film as a whole is inhabited by the protagonist. I think that's what feels incongruent to me. You want to have your protagonist match the world that he's in or be completely opposite for intentional juxtaposition, but I don't think they're going for that. And be the straight man. I don't think that's what they're doing for. He's hamming it up. He's doing these silly dances. He's contorting his face and, you know, doing all these very cartoonish over-the-top expressions. 
And again, it doesn't feel authentic coming from Tim Robbins. I think that's a huge part of my problem. Thoughts? That's fair. That's fair. I I do think Bruce Campbell's too smart for that role. I think he's too savvy. I think if they're looking for a dumb rube, I think that he's he played dumb though. I mean, Ash would, is. Dumb. I, I don't know that is his titular character from the Evil Dead, the first one. Eh, guy's dumb the entire yeah. ninety minutes. I think he could pull it off. Um, I mean, he's he's savvy. Like he puts the chainsaw. Like he figures out how to you know beat the the people at their own game and all of that. He always kind of wins the more day. so in the second in, in one, but less so in the first offhanded one. way. But I do but see what you're saying. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think they're I think they're looking for someone completely over the top stupid. I think that maybe a young Woody Harrelson at the time could yeah. have been a good. Just someone who's a little but, bit more comedic. Like Tim Robbins know. doesn't have comedic chops. That's just the fact of the matter. Maybe if you want to have him play, that's fair. A, a play into type, right? You know, if you put a very serious character in the context of a slapstick film, yeah. I think he could be that guy. He nails the charming beats, but maybe not the comedy beats. Like I think he's charm, innocently charming um, at times, and I think he can can land that. Yeah, but. Um, and there's you know, also times uh, they're maybe. also like the, the the characterization again to get back to that is kind of inconsistent because I don't know if he is supposed to be smart. I don't think he is. But then there's the scene where he's being grilled by Musburger at the very beginning when he gets in the office and he's like, hey, you're an idiot. Right. And he's like, no, I'm not an idiot. And he's like, no, no, you're an idiot. You'd be perfect. And he's like, no, I graduated top of my class. And he's like, yeah, but it was like a bad school. Right. He's like, no, it's this. And he's like, OK, but surely, you know, you failed all your classes. He's like, no, I, I graduated top of my class. And then he's like, get the hell out of here. You're too smart. So how does that work with him being dumb? Well, it was the school he went to. It was like some community college. Well, no, it was Muncie, like like Indiana. Was top- I get that. But what I'm saying is I, I think. Yeah, I don't. Like, I think he was, if he, if you're telling me he graduated top of his class and all this, even if it's a small school, like that still doesn't mean you're dumb. You still taught, graduated at the top of your class for a small school. In, in Palookaville, Indiana, like it was, he's king shit of fuck mountain basically is what they're saying. <laughs> like, you know, he's just, he's the top of his class, uh, but what's his class? Like, look around at the toothless yokels. Feels, he was feels, feels a little against. elitist. I'm not going to lie. That's all I'm saying. Oh no, it was absolutely <laughs> elitist, but you know who, but, but it was elitist by, uh, I guess if that's your you point, know, you know, you're in New York City, but again, like a lot of these things we're making, we're making up as an elitist a lot of this we're making inferences. And I, I really feel like if it wasn't the Coen brothers, if it was, you know, Yui Bowl who has a bad reputation, suddenly we're like, ah, did you see what he did? He didn't even motivate this and that. And that's why I go back to that comment of, I feel sure, like sure. the Coen brothers reputation since then. We we give them a pass on some of these things where we might hold it against well, other people. Well, no, it's not even their reputation. It's their execution. True. And I think it's that's, a deserved reputation. I'm not saying it's not well deserved, but that is their reputation that they're brilliant filmmakers. But it's a reputation. And they demonstrated that. This is a brick. But they can still make a bad film. This is a brick in that wall of their reputation. Sure. This is an important brick. They're firing on all cylinders here. I mean, this is, there's no detail left unchecked in this movie. This movie is full of just amazing detail. And I will agree with you that if you strip away all those, all the minutia and all the detail and all the whimsy that you're left with very little on the bone, but because it's the Coen brothers, it's their distinct you know, brand of whimsy that makes it so lovable and the characters so fleshed out and so enjoyable. Um, and the dialogue so witty. And I do think that, Unfortunately, you could pull the curtain back uh, on the great and powerful Oz of a lot of their movies 
and look at the weak old man that's sitting there pulling the levers. Um, I, I, it's it's sad but true. But there's still auteurs. I think you could do that to probably a lot of auteurs sure. movies um, if you want to strip them back. But uh, I think that they have such a distinct style. Um, that when you see a Coen Brothers movie, you know in 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 30 seconds, this is a Coen Brothers sure. film. And it's a lot of fun. The ride that they take you on is fun. Absolutely. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Yo. What up, cuz? I'm bored. Well, let's have some fun then. You saying what I think you're saying? Damn right. Check this out. Sitting with my homie, feeling kinda lame We've been getting pretty bored of these video games I think it's time to move Yo, I hear what y'all saying And just like that, my homie's hips started swaying I need someone to sway with Chicks think that we're losers Let's head to the store and invest in some hulas We got no car, so we ride the bus Head downtown to the Toys R Us Grab two hoops, head back to the casa Yo, you ain't Lion King like Mufasa Have you saying, did, did I do that? Like Steve Urkel Who knew you could have so much fun with a circle? Aw, shit, look at that thrust action, son Damn right, I was born to hula hoop, kid you can hula hoop at home, a hula hoop in the streets. Just move your hips back and forth like you're a freak in the sheets. We're both virgins, but not the law. We might just find some ladies by the end of this song. Anyone can do it like riding a bike. Hula hoops like telling gravity to take a hike. Yo, gravity sucks. Isaac Newton's a loser. I'm perfecting this craft like my name is Veruza. Hula hoop meant to go round and round. Looks the same right side up as upside down. Got a piece of sand to help it make some crazy sound. When it comes to fun, hula hoop takes the crown. Oh shit, girls are coming. Put the hula hoop down. We look stupid. No, we went hula hoop and we stole these off of some other kids. And now back to the show. Now, before we go ahead and because we're pretty much at the end of the film here. And as I mentioned earlier, we've gotten to the point where Norville, you know, leaves the bar all drunk. He runs into Buzz who knocks him out for being a dick and firing him. Find out that Musburger hired him back. They went ahead and greenlit this flexi straw idea. It's a big hit. Mob chases him all the way to the Hudsucker building. He goes up to the top, finds his mailroom apron inside, puts it back on in what I assume is a gesture of humility, steps out onto the ledge of Hudsucker Industries at the top of the building, and then does indeed proceed to jump. Now, before we get to the final sequence that wraps everything up, I, we, the one thing we, that we really haven't mentioned is the score. Now, the one thing I will say about this is I think that I'm glad you brought yeah, this I up. I think that if you're going to say that this film succeeds and I do think this film succeeds, by the way, I just I, I think that I have maybe a few more criticisms than than you guys do. But the score absolutely is integral to the execution of this film. So much of the old 1950s aesthetic that we think of is defined by the music largely, but especially the quality of the voices, right? Whether it's just the style of acting and delivery at the time, whether it is closely matched to the technical qualities that some of the equipment at the time may have communicated, right? Just sounds different on a 1950s mic than it does on a 2020 mic. Either way, the score is integral to establishing the world. And I think that there are many times where they did, in fact, the Coen brothers, that is, tell the composer, we want this Looney Tunes song 
but we can't afford it. So do it in our own way. Right. <laughs> so uh, I'll let either of you take the response to the score. Ryan, it seems like you had some pretty strong responses. So let's start with you. Well, I mean, I'll tee it up and pass it to Sean, but uh, yeah, this is done by Carter Burwell, who has done all their movies all the way back to Blood Simple, their very first film. Um, he's been with them through the duration. He's even done uh, uh, the, the, what is it? The uh, Tragedy of Macbeth mm. that yeah, was yeah, done yeah. by one of the two Cohen's. I forget ago. which one. Yeah, yeah. So he's done everything for them. And every movie has its own feel. I mean, they've covered homages to a lot of genres. So... You know, kudos to him, man. This one in particular, I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but there's a lot of like opera, like uh, chanting or or like women singing and stuff in the mm. background. Um, it, I do feel like that I've noticed that in other Coen Brothers films. It may be something that I haven't noticed directly, but um, yeah, it's it's very operatic and very theatrical. It makes it feel like a over the top Broadway play or. Uh, something along those lines. And um, and it gives credence to some of the more fantastical moments because yeah. it feels almost otherworldly sometimes uh, how over the top the score can be. And But then, you know, sometimes it can be whimsical. I know that we talked about the hula hoop scene um, that actually was from a ballet. Uh, the song called is called Saber Dance. It's a very recognizable song we've heard a million times in both cartoons and uh, movies alike. If you go look up Saber Dance um, by um, Aram I can't pronounce his last name. Uh, <laughs> you'll see what I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, this is uh, Carter Burwell firing on all cylinders. Nice. Uh, all I'll say to the music is that it, it is a great score. Um, as far as like them interweaving the you know music from you know the, those cartoons, whatever, that's all public domain. I mean, they could just do it themselves if they wanted to. It yeah, it kind of it kind of gave me honestly a. Um, not Sam Raimi, a uh, Tarantino vibe because Tarantino mm. loves to use licensed, cheap licensed music uh, yeah. instead of just having scores. And so it kind of gave, there was a lot of that time where I'm like, oh, hey, that's, yeah, I recognize that. Oh, I recognize yeah. that. It It's funny. It reminded me, um, quick story, that uh, I went to a, fo- a college football game last weekend and they played uh, a piece of music uh, from the Jupiter Suite from Pl- Holt's Planets. And oh, my wow. son, who's 10, and my daughter, who's six, hear this piece and go, Hey, that's from Bluey. So, <laughs> so when we were kids growing up, because we're all roughly the same age, we heard these, we heard classical music from Bugs Bunny cartoons and, and whatever. You know, Bugs Bunny goes and plays and the piano has all these shenanigans, whatever. Like, we heard a lot of this classical music. So that when we got a little bit older and then we heard it in context of what it's supposed to go, we like, oh, that's Beethoven's Ninth. That's what that's called. Or that's Mozart's mm-hmm. Handel. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, we, you, not, that's not a thing. Mozart's, uh, whatever. So, my, my point is, is that Bluey is now taking up that mantle, which is funny. Um, but, <laughs> nice. no, the music was great. I, I really enjoyed the score of this, uh, as this, as a music major, a musician myself. I, for me, usually the score is either going to elevate a movie or do nothing for it. I mean, unless yeah. the music is bad, but usually, if you're if you're making a a major motion picture, you're not making bad music. Uh, but there have been times yeah. where I watch the movie and go, I don't even remember there being music. You know, it's just, it wasn't it wasn't a factor. And for me, in this, it was. It was definitely. It. I think this. It. The music elevated the movie. 
100%. Absolutely. Agreed. Now we get to our final sequence and I do have to admit this is, there's a lot of examples where this film totally works for me. Like, and I think what's interesting, I think that if you really break it down, one of the main issues that I have is it feels like almost at times the story and the script are really just devices to get to visual sequences that the brothers want to do, right? Like there is so much energy in the montage that we spoke of earlier, right? Where the hula hoop is getting approved and produced and manufactured and fails and then succeeds. Like there is so much energy in that sequence. You could tell that the the Coen brothers were just like, this is this is why we're doing this movie so we can make this here. And then it gets to the story and you kind of get the sense they're like, okay, now we got to back to the story. Uh, yeah, you guys just do some shit, whatever, because then we're going to get to this party and everyone's going to get to sound like cartoon characters. So let's get there. Come on, let's go. So like you kind of, I think that's to me what, again, when this film doesn't work, it's because I, again, I feel like the characters are secondary to the world and to the cinematic sequences. Do, would either of you guys agree or disagree with that? I lightly agree. I, I will add that for for whatever it's worth, this, this is, um, I believe, to be the second script uh, they ever wrote. Right after Blood Simple, they wrote this in 1984 okay. with Sam Raimi back when they were all homies. Um, back in, I think, Michigan is where okay. they all grew up. And... Um, yeah, uh, they so this script has been laying around for a long time, and they just never had the clout to make it the way they wanted to until Joel Silver jumped on after he saw Barton Fink and uh, Miller's Crossing, and he's like, I want to work with these guys. He wanted a break from the action pieces he was making uh, with Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and all of that, um, and uh, he wanted to kind of get into the the artsy market and get, get in with those and kind of diversify his bonds, so to speak. So... Uh, yeah, uh, you know, the script had been around for a while. They wrote it early on in their career. So um, I would say they got better. Um, I think we could look at the overall library of, of things they've written and say that uh, this may not be the peak of their uh, career, but, uh, you know, they were they were building on some things. And again, you know, I, I like that you go from Blood Simple, you know, Miller's Crossing and, and Barton Fink, and then this... This is really, to me, the first time that you see this innocent whimsy and, uh, you know, fairy tale element um, that they've brought to other films in the future. So if this is what it took to work some of that out, good on them. Cool. But I, but I don't disagree yeah. with you. You know, you, you, uh, yeah, the world that they're creating is obviously because, uh, again, it's the, the level of detail. It's, it's the music. It's the, the cinematography by Roger Deakins. It's, you know, even in the mailroom, in the, in the, uh, the bunker of the mailroom, um, uh, when uh, Amy Archer is having her, <laughs> not Amy Adams, Amy <laughs> Archer is having her introduction or whatever, there's a sign right over Bruce Campbell's character, um, big bold type. It says, is it interesting? And I know it's meant to be, a reminder to the news crew that's there, you know, like, Hey, like before you write something, is it interesting? You know, make sure. But I also think it very much applies to literally every detail in this film in the world sure. that they're creating, because everything is there in its place. If there, if it's a big vacant space, like Paul Newman's uh, office, as we discussed, it's meant to be that way. Um, a lot of hard lines in this film, everything is that art deco, 
um, you know, vertical lines, you know, uh, squares and boxes. It, something that I wanted to point out, we didn't really talk about, but, it, you know, in the set deck or, or production design of this film, the hula hoop almost exists or the circle itself almost exists out yeah. of place. You have the clock tower, the, the circle on the clock tower. You have the circle coffee ring. Uh, in the beginning that when he lifts up his coffee mug, the job at Hudsucker Industries is mm-hmm. circled. The hula hoop that he keeps showing around, the flexi straw. Um, and then there the are, very last shot Anytime you use a rounded edge and the Frisbee, absolutely, yep. Anytime you see a circle in this film, it's very intentional, but everything is, uh, that you know, the, the, the desk that leads up to the windows, everything is very hard yeah. lines. They uh, really accentuate these hard lines. And uh, so all that to say, you know, the detail of the world building, taking this conversation back full circle. Uh, I agree with you is, was very important. And every detail was, uh, every T was crossed and I was dotted as they say, but uh, you know, the characters were fleshed out, but maybe not the way you wanted to see in the way, in, in the means of like story arc, you know, character arcs and stuff like that. Sure. And then we also see one other final circle before the film is over. And that is the halo on Mr. Hudsucker in this final scene where Norville actually slips on the ledge and he ends up falling down and, as he's getting closer and closer to the ground, all of a sudden he freezes midair, not too far from the ground. And again, in a very, very cartoonish detail, we find that Moses, the clock tower maintenance man, has jammed a stick in the gears, which has then frozen time. And so Mr. Norville is, well, I don't know if he's standing, falling, etc. But either way, he's in the middle of the air. When Warring Hudsucker, the angel that is of Warring Hudsucker, descends from the sky with this little swirling halo that's clearly a practical effect that I couldn't get enough of. I thought it was just wonderful. And again, just, you know, it's very like Looney Tunes, Bugs Buddy, the the spirit of the character floating down from the heavens, playing a harp and has his little spinning halo and basically has a little... No, I mean... He might as well have been chewing a carrot saying, eh, what's up, Doc? As <laughs> he was falling, freeze frame. Absolutely. And he reveals to Norville that he actually never delivered that letter, that blue letter to Musburger. And so he asks him to go ahead and crack it open. Norville does, and it explains that Hudsucker is leaving controlling interest in all of the stock to whomsoever is named the next president of Hudsucker Industries. It would, of course, be assumed at the time of his passing that that would have been Musburger. However, because of this lacking piece of information, we now understand that all of the shares were, in fact, transferred to Mr. Norville. That's right, our protagonist. And the last minute he goes ahead and I think there's like, I forget if it's where the clock tower kind of like breaks the stick, but then there's like the dentures. There's somebody's dentures, right? That are holding it in place right before he actually hits the ground. I I forget whose dentures those were. I don't even know where they came from. It's the guy that kept scraping the names off the windows, off the glass and stuff. That bald guy that kept, uh, he was set up as this ominous character all throughout. And then he finally, the plan payoff is that, uh, I I don't know. Sean, what did you think about that? Was that like, was he set up as like, reality versus fantasy or something it was a good versus evil fight or do you think there was any significance in that character or or that that standoff between our moses character and and whoever that was that was out to right the the wrongs i don't don't know it it i know that some of the other coen brothers movies they always have a character that basically is satan you know you know the the okay 
the 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 Marshall guy that's out chasing George Clooney there with the shades at the end of the movie when they finally capture him. Like he's the mm-hmm. devil, right? He's he's the devil. Yeah. Um, so Anton is that what from uh, No Country for Old Men. Yeah. So okay. like, is he? Yeah. A Faustian character. Yeah, so is that what he is in this role? Like he, all he does is like he he take, he scrapes the names off the thing, off the whatever. Like he's, I don't I don't know. Is is he the angel of death or something? I don't know. And Moses is again quite literally he's God in the machine. So like, so they have a weird fist fight of two old men, and you know he gets his dentures knocked out, and and so. He, you know, uh, Bill Cobbs uses his dentures to to stop the clock again, which again is weird. Like, the the clock stops for Tim Robbins, sort of. Gravity stops, but not him. It's him. And then, uh, like, Paul Newman is frozen, but these two guys are still whatever. That's what makes they exist, they exist out, of exist time, out of time, right. which makes me think like he is uh, as super supernatural as is Bill Cobbs, right? Because Bill Cobbs is yeah, yeah. Know, I think, that. yeah. I mean, coming from it at it from a religious uh, metaphor standpoint, like what you're presenting, um, it's almost like as he's scraping the names off the glass each time one of these people dies, it's like he's removing them from the yeah. earth, right, or removing their names from the book of life or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, that makes but sense. If you want to look at it from a metaphorical standpoint, yeah, yeah, sort of the angel of death thing, like you mentioned, yeah. that does make sense. I do appreciate yeah. that. And uh, of course, you know, by the time the dentures get smashed up. Norville is so close to the ground that he actually doesn't encounter any damage whatsoever. With his newfound fortune, he goes running off. And like I said, they're able to have Musburger committed. And we get the final shot of Norville still in charge. And he has created the Frisbee. He throws it out the window and the film comes to an end. And that has been the Hudsucker proxy. So obviously... A lot to appreciate about this film uh, while acknowledging that it is a film that is made for certain types of viewers. Now, as for kids, for kids. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as we like to do on this show, when we wrap up a film, we're going to go ahead and do our three adjectives feature where very cleverly we give our three adjectives that may or may not be heavily manipulated. Uh, so, Ryan, we'll go ahead and start with you. What are your three adjectives that summarize your response to the Hudsucker Proxy? Uh, my first one is Americana. I feel like the Coens just steep Americana, like, in their own way, like Norman Rockwell or, or something along those lines. Like, it just feels so quintessentially us uh, and their their childhood and the way they grew up and all of those things. So they could work in and out of any genre they want, uh, but it's always kind of steeped in this same vibe. And this one uh, in particular just felt like an old tweed suitcase, you know, (laughs) like all the browns and sapia tones that Deacons was working with. I feel like all their films kind of feel that way. But this one in particular, by the time you get the hula hoop is really the only saturated color in this whole film. Everything else is all shades of brown and tweed. Uh, It feels very lived in and just has that old Americana feel. Almost like that Nighthawks painting with like the people eating in the diner. Like that's what this Mm -hmm. movie felt like to me. Uh, My second adjective is whimsy. As always, I think the uh, Coen brothers just play in a whimsical world uh, where anything can happen. It's hyper realism. I love it. Uh, it's a, you know, from the that's where the Bugs Bunny stuff comes from. It's all that feeling of whimsy and anything could happen at any given moment. You never really need an explanation. Um, and uh, I think I've used that word 
throughout this podcast as well. So uh, my last one is Feast. I feel like there's a lot in this movie, a lot that we didn't talk about, you know, uh, things we touched on briefly for the sake of time. We couldn't really get to all of them or, or, I mean, you could have a whole podcast just about Deacon cinematography. You could talk <laughs> sure. about just the set decoration or production design, or the acting or the music, but everything was such a feast. Everything, everybody was just like firing on all, all cylinders. You could talk. I mean, obviously the downside is in fact the character arcs or some of the bones way down deep under all the fluff, but Holy crap, the fluff, like, like, it's so much wonderful fluff. I love the fluff. <laughs> and from the mailroom scene to, you know, uh, every little bit of dialogue to all the little details. Like, everybody's doing something at all times. Yeah. And you could freeze frame this movie and, like, it could be, like, one of those highlights things where you have to circle, like, the 20 things that you find in every frame of this movie. I just feel like there's so much going on. This movie was a feast. How about you, Sean? Guys? What you got? Uh, my three, I'm just going to kind of hit them all three at one time. Uh, uh crazy. Cause everything in this movie is kind of r- ridiculous and crazy. Um, tropey. This movie has a lot of tropes. I mean, it, it feels like if you go to TV you would find everyone in this movie at some point. And, <laughs> and then my, and then my last one is cartoony. Uh, just, yeah. Yeah. For obvious reasons, right? For obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And yeah, so that's funny that that's your last one because that's actually my first one. You've heard me refer to it this way the entire review here. Yeah, cartoonish is just a perfect way to describe this film. The other thing that I didn't really mention is that, I mean, we kind of mentioned it indirectly, but just didn't specifically call out that this is a very plot heavy film. I was very surprised as I was going through and I was building out the notes for the episode and everything how many story points there were, you know? And I think that's kind of one of those aspects we talk about, right? Like the pie chart, right? Every film has a pie chart, you know? Where did all of your resources go? Did you put most of your resources into the cinematography so the writing fails? Or did you balance everything out equivalently, right? There's so many different ways. I usually like to use the analogy of like an RPG character creator, right? If you're Aaron Sorkin, you're putting like three quarters of your points into screenplay. Whereas if you're maybe Ken Russell, you're doing the same with your visuals, right? But this is a very plot heavy film. It's very narratively driven, but unfortunately the way that I look at it, it does come at the expense of some of that character development and the character arcs as we spoke of. And then my third adjective is inconsistent, you know, for for many different reasons that we talked about, just from the acting, right, how there's not necessarily always a consistent through line with the energy, the sort of disparate nature of the effort that's put into some of the visual sequences and not put it into maybe some of the character or screenplay elements. So I still very much enjoyed it, but I did find it to be inconsistent at times. So cartoonish. Plot heavy and inconsistent. That summarizes my response with Hudsucker Proxy. By the way, uh, almost no hyphenating on today from three of us. So for nine adjectives, only one brief hyphen in plot heavy. That's got to be some sort of record for us. All bringing us (laughs) to our final formal ratings. So if this is your first time listening to us, thanks so much. We do... A little bit different grade rating system. Ryan likes to use the traditional grade, you know, A plus through F. I like to use star ratings, uh, you know, one through five. And then we'll have Sean, who's free to use either of those or any unique rating system of his choosing. So 
Sean, I'm going to go ahead and start with you. Uh, what kind of what kind of a system do you want to use, and what's your final uh, response to this film? Well, with my podcast, we always do an out of ten, a score from zero to ten. Okay. And uh, though usually I do some kind of um, ridiculous decimal system because when you have over 400 episodes, you have to have some way of differentiating between a you know a a seven point. <laughs> That's a problem I wouldn't have even yeah, thought about. You have to have yeah. a differentiate between a seven point five three and a seven point five four. You know something <laughs> gave it the extra, uh, but. And this is not the case. So I just gave this movie an eight Bruce Campbells out of ten. Nice. I like love it. Love it. Ryan, what you got? I'm giving this one an A minus. I really love this movie. Nice. It's not their best. It's not the best movie I've ever seen. But holy crap, is it fun. And I, it's one of those movies, too, that I think you could recommend to almost anybody. I think that anybody could watch this at face value and enjoy it. You don't have to know who the Coens are. You don't have to like a certain genre of movie. It's just a playful, whimsical, fun movie. You could just put it on any time of year. Your gram-gram could watch it. Your kids can watch it. There's nothing really crass about it. It's pretty censored down for a Coen Brothers film. It's maybe their tamest ever. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love this movie. A-. minus. How about you, bud? Nice. So I'm going to give this one a formal three and a half out of five stars. Okay. I did enjoy this film. It's it's a good film. It was a film that – so funny thing, uh, Sean, it's kind of funny that you talked about how you'd seen this film several times without really knowing it. I had actually knowingly seen this film probably as many times, if not more. But there's a very good chance that this is the first time that I ever sat down and watched it beginning to end. Now, I don't know if you guys have films like this. I'm sure that you do. I know other people do where whatever, you know, channels you used to watch growing up. Right. Like we had stolen cable. So we had like HBO and things like that, you know, and this was one of those films where I'm sure because it was super cheap to license because it bombed so hard. It was on all the time. And I would never actually like sit down and knowingly watch it. I think because I was younger and I wasn't attracted to a 1950s sensibility or aesthetic. However, as we talked about, there's so many cartoonish elements that as I would like end up watching it, it was like, oh, this is kind of silly and zany and fun. So I think that I've watched this film in pieces a total of half a dozen times growing up, but never actually sat down and watched it beginning to end. So... Uh, it is kind of, again. I, I I did enjoy the movie. It was a lot of fun. It did have some elements that uh, you know didn't work for me with regards to the story and characterization. But yes, I would still definitely recommend this to everybody. And it is a family friendly film. You know, it's not one of those things where you're gonna have to sit there and watch some Disney cartoon for the 80th time. You know, uh, I think that you can enjoy it because you know for the kids. For the kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to so, say. So with the. It, it really is. Yeah, and it is fun to quote. It's fun to reference. It's fun to talk about. So it's not without value. Um, but I do think, you know, uh, it doesn't reach the levels that maybe some other people do. So with that all being said, Sean, once again, why don't you let our audience know uh, you're a little bit more about your podcast once again and where they can find you? Yeah, again, we're Cheap Seat Reviews. You can find us at cheapseatreviews.libsyn.com. Uh, there they have links to all of our other social medias and things like that. If you want to interact with me specifically, Twitter is the best place for it. And uh, yeah, Cheap Seat Reviews, podcast that explores the Hollywood film industry for the greater good. So go check it out. 400 episodes. I'm sure you're going to find an episode that you're going to enjoy. 
Um, yeah, there you go. You if can, not, that's on you at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. We just we uh, today yeah, I really maybe we, movie podcasts aren't your thing there. Yeah. Well, okay. Side funny thing: we had someone leave a comment on our YouTube channel saying that they don't like movie review shows because they don't want to be told what to think, and it's like, well, then don't listen to the show. I don't know how to help Sean, you. Yeah, I saw, right, yeah. <laughs> I saw you share, shared that on Twitter, and I almost fell out of my chair laughing when I when you posted that. That was the most ridiculous review I've ever seen. Yeah. Talk about a cheap seat <laughs> review. Yeah, like if you don't the like the review, the movie was pretty good, fine, but, but I don't really like movies, so like, eh. yeah, yeah, it's just hey. <laughs> thanks. Anyway, it's That's fun. Hilarious. It's fun. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, people are people out there are kind of nuts, but uh, you know we've got we've got an awesome audience. I know you have an awesome audience. So to everyone listening. Uh, week in and week out, we do appreciate y'all. And one of the things that I will say for us is same. You know, Twitter is probably easiest and best way to get a hold of us at Esoterica Cinema. We're also on the Instagram at Esoterica Cinema. That's another great way to engage with us. And of course, we do have the website. Website is looking great these days. We've done a refresh. We've got the web player there. We've got either full movies, like when we did Assault on Precinct 13 not too long ago, we were able to find the actual feed. And put that up on the website so that anybody could watch it in HD absolutely free. And then, of course, we have our master list with all 200 films for this season that we choose from each and every episode right here on Esoterica Cinema. And, Sean, when we have guests, what we like to do is actually throw to you and have you... Basically pull the number for us. You know, it could either just be a random number, one through 200. You can sort of use any sort of, you know, system you might like to use, add this number, that number, whatever system. I just need a number one through 200. What you got for me? Let's see. How about I just got an alert on my phone, a push notification that Clemson and Wake Forest are at 38 and 38 tied going into overtime. So that math, what? That's what, 60, 76, 76. 76 will be our number. Okay, so that comes to, yeah, 76. 76. For everyone playing along at home, go ahead and go to the website. Go to the second page towards the top, 76. You will find that it is not the film right above it at 75, which is a fun one, Kung Fu Hustle. Ryan, I know that's like two of our favorites, man. Love that film. Any chance we get to talk about that one is always good. And it is not the film right below it, number 77, which is L.A. Confidential, great Curtis Hansen film, launched a lot of careers. That's a Got fun Guy one. Guy Pearce we, in there, Danny DeVito. Yeah, we did that one Kevin a while Spacey ago. That's when great. It was still cool to like him. Bunch of other people. No, we are doing number 76, the film. Ooh, I, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation. Might butcher the pronunciation. La Aventura. Ryan, La Aventura. you got a description for us. Maybe it's La Aventura. I don't know, but uh, either way, what you got for us? This is by Antonioni, Mr. Michelangelo Antonioni. Google has it summarized as two lovely young women, Claudia and Anna, join the latter's lover, Sandro, on a boat trip to a remote volcanic island. When Anna goes missing, an extensive search is launched. In the meantime, Sandro and Claudia become involved in a romance despite Anna's disappearance, though the relationship suffers from the guilt and tension Brought about by the looming mystery. Couldn't imagine why. That's an awkward one. Awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I have not seen an Antonioni film. I don't believe. Me either. So this will be my first one on that. This was Same. released back in 1960, 1961 in the United States. So, yeah. Let's get into it. This is on a lot of uh, must-see lists. Uh, like yeah. A lot of, 
you must see before you die kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, excited to finally get to this one. Definitely, definitely. It'll be my first Antonioni film as well, so very much looking forward to that. I think his other most famous film is probably The Passenger with Jack Nicholson. Either way, very much looking forward to this. So for everyone listening, thanks so much for joining us here today. Sean, it was great to have you on, man. Lo- loved that. We're really yeah, looking forward to doing something man. again Appreciate with you, you sometime. And to everyone else, go ahead and be sure to watch La Ventura, or maybe it's L.A. Ventura. Uh, that, that might be a good pronunciation. Either way, La Ventura ahead of our next episode, and we will see you in two weeks for another full-length review right here on Esoterica Cinema.